And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be. On this rotating globe, welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when on this planet these days, uh, just about everything can happen. And as we've said now for years, it no longer is confined to between the wee hours of the morning and dawn. It's uh, kind of 24-7. We have a really intriguing show for you tonight. Scott Walter is our guest, um, his colleague and uh, uh, tour guide um, uh, colleague, uh, Hallie Ramsey, unfortunately cannot be with us. Uh, she'll be with us probably when we have Scott back in uh, in August sometime. They're doing another tour over the United States and North America, and we will probably be touching base with them then. So uh, uh, Hallie is still in Scotland, and we wish her well. She had a tour sometime this morning, and uh, so we will obviously be accommodating her schedule given that she has been delayed. We do have uh, Barbara Honiger with us for the uh, full show. And in the third hour, we're going to be joined by Georgia Lambert, and uh, Scott and I are going to have some really interesting times discussing archaeology. But the start of the conversation, well, David, let me let, let me not get ahead of where we are because there's many breaking things happening rather simultaneously, which is kind of the subject of tomorrow night's show with Rick Levine and Georgia Lambert again. And we're going to, well, I'll, I'll kind of give you a little preview at the end of tonight's show about uh, uh, tomorrow. Before we get into tonight, I, I do want to make one uh, apology to my audience and to my guests of last Saturday. I lost my cool. I lost my temper, and I should never do that. Um, for those of you who may not have heard the show, uh, I did tell two people uh, rather emphatically that it was my show, and I would determine what went on it. So let me give you the context. I was not trying to talk over anyone. I was not trying to silence anyone, <clears throat> just the opposite. Uh, I had two individuals who insisted for some bizarre reason that there were areas that I was not supposed to go, that there were subjects I was not on this show to bring up. Specifically, I mentioned the name of Donald Trump, and that's what, of course, initiated such extraordinary reaction. I don't understand it. We've had politicians before going back decades centuries no one has triggered the high sensitivities of people like the mention of donald trump and the reason i brought him up is because remember back when uh, the president had just been elected in 2016 we initiated a project i initiated a project to put our enterprise mission imaging research of artifacts on the moon and mars in front of the new president of the United States. I used a go-between, someone in New York who has uh, known Donald Trump for something like 40 years and has known me for somewhat less of a period of time. But I was able to create, with the help of Kinthea and Tim and all the rest of the imaging team, a really remarkable video called The Presidential Briefing. And that was sent through back channels directly from the Enterprise Mission to the new president of the United States. And what I said on the show last Saturday, which seemed to trigger a really extraordinary, and I frankly think over the top reaction, where these two individuals kept telling me, 
I couldn't bring up Donald Trump because he wasn't relevant. Um, again, this is my show. I determine what's relevant, and almost everything is relevant given the extraordinary times we are going through. And as we've said on countless programs, that is not a coincidence. That is not an accident. People are kind of dissolving in all different directions because in our model, the change of the physics and its impact directly on consciousness. And if you want an example of over-the-top reactions, both on my guest part and on my part, just listen to toward the tail end of uh, last Saturday night show. Again, I apologize to the audience. Um, I did not mean for you to experience that, but then I didn't anticipate that anybody would try to tell me on my show what I can talk about. I mean, imagine um, I've been on every imaginable television and radio show that you can think of, including uh, uh, Johnny Carson. Can you imagine me as a guest on Carson telling him, telling Johnny from the couch, from that chair between the couch and the desk that, well, we can talk about certain things, but if you bring up so-and-so, I'm going to walk out. I mean, this is unthinkable before this present era. So that was the context in which I made the rather important point that I do not permit censorship. I mean, I've had people on, I've had subjects on that I totally, totally disagree with. But as I've said many times, I'm a firm believer in the First Amendment. There's a reason why it's the First Amendment and why the second one comes second. And so I will insist on a fair airing of all issues. And I certainly will not be said, uh, talked to on the show about what I can talk about and what I can't. So sorry for taking a few minutes at the top here, but uh, I felt we needed to clear the air. And uh, I hope I have done so. Obviously, if you have any response, there is an open line of communication in the upper left-hand corner of the homepage of the other side of midnight. There is a very nice uh, 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 show thingy which says contact us. It's about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine down. So you can reach us there on cell phones. I'm not quite sure or smartphones uh, where it is, but uh, send me a note. Um, I am a firm believer in the First Amendment. Be that as it may, um, for yo those of you who are new to the show, we have a lot of visuals tonight. So I need to direct you to Radio with Pictures, which is the section of the program where we uh, display links and videos and images and art and all kinds of things that are relevant to the show. If you go to the other side of midnight tonight and you click on tonight's banner, which says very prominently there at the top of the homepage, um, Scotland unearthed. And it has the pictures of uh, Scott Walter and Haley Ramsey and Barbara Honiger. Again, I said that uh, Haley could not make it tonight, but we, we kind of figure we leave her picture up and her bio is further down in the website. So if you want to kind of check out uh, who Hallie Ramsey is and anticipation of her coming on the show sometime, as I said, probably in August, uh, you can get a kind of a head start. So you're on the banner, you click on the banner on the home page that will take you to the guest page. Click on My Fast Items, which is a link under that banner on the guest page that will take you to my section of radio pictures. And again, as we've begun for several weeks now, um, the um, news items tonight, we're leading with this remarkable 
unmanned mission to the moon called Capstone, which was launched on the 28th of June and is taking a very, 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 very slow boat to China. If you look at that, um, that diagram to the right of the uh, headline, that's the orbit that the Capstone spacecraft, this 55-pound microwave-sized uh, 12U CubeSat, is taking en route to the moon. As you can see, it leaves and then it makes this extraordinary orbit going almost a million miles out before it sweeps back in through the solar system beyond the orbit of the moon and then rendezvous up there uh, kind of at the uh, uh, 930 position, if you can think of the orbit of the moon looked at uh, like this as a clock with midnight at the top and six at the bottom and nine being to the left. So why this extraordinary orbit and why will it take the capstone mission something like four months to cross a mere quarter of a million miles, a distance that, of course, the Apollo astronauts crossed in three days. The answer is energy. Moving in space, changing orbits, requires energy. And at the current level of technology, that means rockets. That means rocket fuel. That means mass. The more fuel, the more mass. So what the um, computer experts at JPL and other parts of NASA figured out using supercomputers some years ago is there are a series of orbits that are very, very, very low energy between the Earth and finally orbiting the moon. But you trade energy for time. Instead of taking three days, it will take them four months with several tweaking burns or mid-course corrections, little tiny thruster uh, burps, which will kind of shift the trajectory to do exactly what that extraordinary orbit looks like it's doing, which is surfing the three-dimensional moving gravitational fields of the sun, the earth, and the moon. And since all these bodies are constantly moving relative to each other, and they all have significant in the Earth-Moon system gravitational influences, the art form of trading time for energy literally involves surfing the gravity fields, the changing gravity fields of these three objects primarily. There's a little tiny smidgen of noise from the other planets and the big guys and all that, but primarily it's these three objects constantly moving relative to each other that create this unusual capability where you can surf for almost no energy from one field to the next field to the same field to the sun's field back to the lunar field and the ultimate goal is in four months on november 13th the capstone spacecraft will be inserted into its uh, final orbit which is a very bizarre orbit that we won't describe tonight but it's the orbit that the gateway uh, lunar space station which is essential for the Artemis mission, returning to the moon and ultimately building a lunar base at the South Pole. All of this is dependent on the success of the capstone mission, which is basically testing out this bizarre orbit before Gateway follows it in a couple of years to the moon. With that all out of the way, uh, keep your eye on capstone. There's some very unusual properties we're gonna talk about in the subsequent weeks as we get closer. Um, moving on to item number two, we have of course been doing 
updates since it was launched uh, in December on Christmas Day of last year. The Webb telescope is on station in its own halo orbit, about a million miles behind the Earth when viewed from the sun. And it is ready. The instruments have all been commissioned. I think there's one left they're working on. And I thought it would be kind of interesting to compare item number two, a photograph of a model of the Webb Space Telescope on the lawn uh, at Goddard, the Goddard Space Flight Center, which, of course, was the center where I was a consultant for many years. Those people all out in front of this model are members of the uh, Webb Space Telescope team. That's not all the members. There are members scattered around the country at contractors, universities, and all that. But that's primarily the Goddard team. And you can see the stunning size of this telescope that we have put into orbit with a mirror. That's that gold hexagonal thingy kind of sticking up in the middle of the mylar sheets. That mirror is 21 feet in diameter, not inches, feet, which is why when we get to finally see some amazing imagery, which will be, I believe, next Wednesday on the 12th, you are in for a treat, a stunning treat, and then the treats will just keep on coming. Item number three, while all this is going on, of course, we're keeping an eye open on the Artemis first moon mission, which will be launched sometime in late August, maybe into early September. It will be an unmanned full-up mission with the SLS uh, uh, Saturn V follow-on moon rocket, on top of which will be the Orion spacecraft and the European Space Agency service module. And this will fly probably, uh, again, late August on a two-week mission around the moon in lunar orbit, taking lots and lots of pictures, testing all kinds of systems, stressing the Orion spacecraft uh, as one can only do in space. And so that is coming up and we're gonna be watching very carefully. Now, in this envelope of political decision-making vis-a-vis the moon, and remember, as a kind of a wild card, we still have that weird double crater that nobody either NASA nor the intelligence community of the entire planet has been able to come up with a satisfactory explanation of who hit the moon with what and why, if they did, won't they fess up, given that there's no obvious overt military value in keeping something secret that's just gone splat in front of the entire world. Well, whoever launched it is remaining mum. Remember, my vote is that it was not anybody from Earth. It was actually extraterrestrials as way of a warning, as a message that only those that have the code key can understand. And since we're not supposed to, what we say does not count. But in the same time frame, suddenly the current head of NASA, the current administrator of NASA came out with a statement you know, a few days ago, which has been picked up now by all the news services, the networks, the wire services, social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, because Nelson, Bill Nelson, the administrator of NASA, warned China and warned the United States about China that they are planning to build a lunar base with the Russians to, quote, occupy the moon with the heavy implication that if they do this, they will somehow prohibit 
other nations, including the United States, from even building a moon base, let alone landing, because they will, quote, own the moon. I mean, this is all really phantasmagorical, and one has to wonder, what is it we're not seeing? What is the part of the conversation that the administrator of NASA is not kind of letting us in on for why he should warn the Western European nations that are uh, collaborating with NASA on Artemis, that he should warn the collaborators on the space station, our own space station, ISIS, which of course includes the Russians, and why he should be warning the Chinese, who by law, enacted by uh, Congress several years ago, we are, we meaning the United States, meaning NASA, is enjoined by law from cooperating in any way, shape, or form with China in space. So why is NASA suddenly warning that Chinese could be planning to, quote, own the moon? Well, there's the mainstream answer, and then there's our answer. And our answer, of course, has to do with what's waiting on the moon for anybody who actually sets up a permanent presence. Because as you know, in our model, there's an extraordinary amount of ancient stuff built by not one, but several ET civilizations. One of those civilizations or more than one of those eras could have actually been a high-tech version of the human race that came to technology long time ago, millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years of which we have no knowledge. But when we get to the moon and we find the libraries, we may in fact uh, find a whole tableau of hidden history of which we are totally unaware at the moment. It just seems to me that the current head of NASA warning China about wanting to occupy and own the moon is kind of like overkill. I mean, what are, what are the Chinese and the rest going to do? Take up missiles and shoot down Earth spacecraft? That, of course, would trigger World War III, so that's not viable. So what is it that Nelson was really warning China and Russia about? Obviously, we're not going to answer that this morning, but uh, until we do our next space show and bring new evidence to the table, just kind of think about that. Why is the head of NASA warning China about wanting own and occupy the moon? Could there be something there that would be worth owning? Think about it. Okay, item number five. As all of this is unfolding in Washington and between NASA and the Chinese and between NASA and the Chinese and the Russians, um, Elon Musk is doing something very interesting. He just rolled his Starship prototype to the launch pad there in Boca Chico, Texas, in preparation for an orbital test flight, which if he had his way, could occur in July. And if the FAA uh, has their way, will probably slip into August. But again, in that same time frame, and this is the same time frame as Artemis is supposed to depart Earth and also head for the moon. And of course, um, uh, SpaceX has now been put under contract as part of Artemis. It is designing and building the lander system for the astronauts going to the moon on the Artemis uh, vehicle. And of course, uh, that's going to be a starship. So 
oh, what a tangled web we weave when we have all these players involved in the space business, and some of them really don't like each other. And um, that's where we're going to leave it there. So we're following all these stories as, as we get a more firm commitment date for the uh, uh, Earth orbital prototype typical launch of Starship. We will obviously let you know. And wouldn't it be really cool if it's on a weekend? Turning to more mainstream news, as you all are obviously aware, the former prime minister, the longest serving prime minister of Japan uh, in history, post-World War II, uh, was assassinated uh, a couple days ago in a very bizarre uh, occurrence. I mean, who can think of why you would want to kill one of the most popular and effective uh, international uh, politicians in a very, very long time. Uh, Shinzo Abe had rescued the Japanese economy from oblivion uh, many, many years ago. Um, he came back from political oblivion himself, ran again after uh, resigning many years ago, won and became the longest uh, serving prime minister in Japan's history. And then someone a couple of days ago killed him. Given that I am suspicious of all of these things that are going on in the international arena right now, against the backdrop of official government admission with the setting up of, a, of an office in the Pentagon, that UFOs, UAPs, whatever you want to call them this Thursday, they are real and they are somehow uh, playing cat and mouse with the U.S. military. Well, when this was brought to the attention of Japan some years ago, uh, the Abe government went from the position of not even acknowledging that UFOs were real to the defense establishment in Japan, setting up, just like the Pentagon, an office with orders that the Japanese military, if they encounter this kind of phenomenon, they are supposed to A, take lots of pictures, and B, they are supposed to report it up the chain of command. I just can't help but wondering, is... Abe's assassination somehow connected with Japan's sudden recognition of the reality and the necessity to investigate UFOs. Uh, do not have an answer tonight, but be that as it may, we will follow these stories. Now, before we get to my guests, I want to bring up one final mainstream news uh, segment, and that is a couple, three days ago, America's Stonehenge, the so-called... Uh, Georgia Guidestones, which appeared, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago mysteriously in Georgia. Um, we we're going to talk in the detail about what they entail. But they were taken out with a very interesting uh, IUD, improvised explosive device. And then the state of Georgia was moving with extraordinary alacrity for a government bureau, decided to finish the job. And so they knocked down with explosives all of the Georgia Guidestones claiming that there was some kind of public uh, safety or hazard involved, and so they had to be eliminated. Needless to say, I find that just a tad, shall we say, suspicious. So without further ado, um, let me switch now to our main topic of the evening and our two initial guests, Scott Walter and Barbara Honiger. And what you want to do is you want to click on bios under the uh, 
um, uh, fast links there under the banner at the top of the guest page. Um, Scott Walter is very, very well known. He's a forensic geologist known as the host of the History Channel's hit show, America Unearthed, which follows him on his quest to uncover the truth behind controversial historical artifacts and sites found throughout North America and beyond. He also co-hosted history's pirate treasure of the Knights Templar about late 17th century pirate shipwrecks, Freemasons, and the Ninth Templar. And uh, his whole bio there is on the uh, other side of Midnight uh, uh, guest page. So without further ado, Scott, come on down. Unmuting helps. Unearthing and unmuting. Hello. Okay, I hear you clicking, but I don't hear any words. Oh, this is not good. This is definitely not good. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. Let's go to Barbara and see if she is on board. Barbara, are you, are you with us? Can you hear me? I can hear you five by. We just <laughs> we just can't hear Scott. <laughs> uh, that was a problem when I first came on just before the show, so maybe he just needs to click out and be called again on Skype. Yeah. Keith, can you do that, please? So I guess we're going to have four minutes here till the bottom of the hour to talk about anything we want to. Where, where would you like to dive in, given that we're going to be truncated at the bottom of the hour? Are you talking to me? Mm-hmm. It's only you and me here. <laughs> well, I'm sure Scott will be back. Um, I know that you wanted to uh, to go next to him to talk about the uh, destruction of the Georgia Godstones by explosives, which has which was kind of uh, piggybacked onto a show that was supposed to be about ancient Egypt and ancient Scotland and modern Scotland. But um, so I'm not going to talk about that because I'll leave that to you. But I will, um, as a kind of uh, preface to my part of the my main part of the show, that where I will be going through my items to tell the incredible story of the central connection of ancient Egypt, in particular, according to the best scholarship that I'm aware of. Uh, Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and their eldest daughter, whose Egyptian name was Meritaten, um, who, according to the best scholarship I'm aware of, uh, uh, left left Egypt and uh, went uh, in a boat uh, into the Mediterranean Sea, probably not intending to end up in Ireland, but they did, probably by a storm. Um, and Skoda... Uh, and her sons um, founded uh, the dynasties of the royalty in Ireland, and the Stone of Destiny, also known as Scota Stone, uh, became the coronation stone of the ancient Scottish, the ancient Irish kings at Tara, and then it was taken from Ireland to the Isle of Iona where it was uh, eventually in the possession there of St. Columba, the patron saint of Scotland, from where it was then taken to the Scottish mainland and eventually to Stone Scone Palace in Perthshire, in the heart of Scotland. Um, and it was then became the coronation stone of all of the Scottish kings up until 1296. And that stone is central 
to one's dream of finally becoming independent, which could happen as early as this, as December of 2023 next year. So that's the preface to what I'll be talking about. Mm, that's a very good preface. Um, I d- still don't see if we have any joy on Scott. We have a break coming up at the bottom of the hour. So what we're going to do is we're going to uh, uh, pause for that. And then hopefully on the other side, we will have Scott with us. And if we don't, it's going to be you and me, kid. <laughs> well, he'll come in eventually. But there's what would happen if he doesn't come right on is we would go to what the show was going to originally be before the Georgia Guidestones were blown up. Well, they're not much of a diversion, as you will see. <laughs> So without further ado, you're on the other side of midnight. My guests this morning to start off are Scott Walter, who is floating around out there somewhere in the ether, and Barbara Honiger, and uh, Georgia Lambert is going to join us in the third hour. And as you can hear in the background, we thought tonight we would play some of my favorite, favorite music. I love bagpipes, and I never get to play them because we rarely talk about Scotland. As I said in the promo that I wrote this morning for the show, is it possible except for a wee twist of fate, that tonight we'd all be known as Scottish men and women and not Americans. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight on this Saturday, July 9th, 2022. I believe we have solved our communications problems with Scott. Scott, are you there? I am here. Can you hear me, Richard? I can hear you five by. And Barbara's still with us? Yes. There we are. Okay. Okay, I guess I'm good. Okay, you are good to go. Um, Gosh, I'm really enjoying the idea that we're going to have 
you know, two and a half hours, maybe a little less to kind of talk this morning. Uh, let me start with the Guidestone thing, given that you actually had been there. And for both people who haven't followed the story, to me, it's kind of ap- emblematic of everything is happening at once. And this is something that no one that I'm aware of would have ordered. But I'm, I'm, I'm not so much dismayed by the uh, sabotage as I am by the incredibly swift action of the state of Georgia to kill the rest of the monument when all they had to do was put, you know, yellow tape around it and try to figure out who the perpetrator was. But of course, now that all the evidence is destroyed, uh, there's a fat chance of tracking down whoever did this. Thoughts? Well, I, I agree with you. I find it to be more than a little suspicious. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, it, it's funny because um, you would think that first and foremost, if you have a crime that was committed like that, the first thing you do is you seal off the area if you're law enforcement and you bring in an investigative team that could, you know, look for things like footprints. Um, I'm not sure if there's anything, um, foot pr- uh, fingerprints. Um, well, you know, there, is, whole- there is apparently video of a car and activity and people driving away and you know it's like the gbi the georgia bureau of investigation like the fbi is kind of at the top of its uh, field so the idea that the gbi team didn't move in to try to figure out who did this and they just the state just decided to destroy the whole damn thing uh i i think suspicious is at the lower end of my reaction well, well i'm trying to be diplomatic and you know, get to where I, I, you know, what I've already concluded. But, but the point is, is that this is not how an investigation into a crime is handled. And to come in there and just destroy everything and haul it off and, and dump it somewhere is, to me, uh, a, a crime in itself. Because, first of all, it looked to me from the photos, the, the initial photos, that even though one of the four major slabs with the inscriptions had been destroyed, the monument was still standing. And, you know, I, I understand it probably was somewhat unstable, but we don't know. We'll never know because nobody, nobody, no engineer went in and looked at it as far as I know. And then the other thing is, if you're not going to try to rebuild it, which you would think if something is, you know, attempted to be destroyed like that, you'd think about doing because it does impact the economy of this area, which is very rural and I'm sure was probably the main attraction in the area. So it does affect other people. But the other thing is, why not salvage those slabs and put them in a museum? I mean, it becomes part Part of of the history of this site. Yes, exactly. And so the fact that they didn't even consider any of, any of these things tells me that there's there's more going on here. And look, I you know I'm open to I try to I try to be careful when it comes to conspiracies, but this one just screams of larger forces at work. I don't think this is some guy that you know is is a is a, a religious zealot that you know thought this was the devil's work. I think there's. I think there's a group of people that thought that, that 
put this whole thing together. I, I'm, I'm convinced of that until I see evidence to the contrary. Do we know what county this in Georgia was uh, built, created? You know, I don't know off the top of my head, but I can tell you that there isn't a lot there. It's about 100 miles, I think, outside of um, Atlanta. Atlanta, I think, yeah. I mean, we were down there back in 2013. I was looking at some of the pictures we took when we filmed that episode, and I really enjoyed that particular episode. I I found the stones to be fascinating and certainly of no threat at all. But, you know, Richard, one of the things that has really puzzled me in all the articles I've read since you know, the monument was destroyed two days ago. Nobody has said, said one word about the context of the time when these stones were put up and why they were put up and what the message was intended to convey, why the message was written. Nobody has talked about that. Certainly nobody has considered that who is behind this heinous act. And I just find that astounding. I mean, do you know what the context is of why these things were built and why the message is what it is? Well, from the whole creation, this monument was cloaked in secrecy at several different levels. And there's apparently a code name of something R. Christensen, who was... R.C. R.C. Christian. Christian, okay. Who was ostensibly the, the, the donor and the, the, the driving force behind it but other than it being a kind of an ecological message and, uh, you know, can we all get along, um, the idea that this would cause such passions on the part of somebody, they would risk jail time, knowing, of course, that there were 24-7 uh, cameras rolling. They apparently had a previous incident of a much milder uh, import, and so they put in cameras. A lot of good it did, did this. But what I don't understand is after you have an act of vandalism, I mean, this would be like the Smithsonian dynamiting the rest of an exhibit because they don't really care to find out who, who defaced it. It's, it's, it's bizarre. Well, it's, it's, it's bizarre on one hand, but it's, it's perfectly um, understandable on another. Let, let me go back to the context. You know, this guy, R.C. Christian, which, of course, was a, was a pseudonym. That, that's not his real name. Right. Um, and we do, and, and there's a lot of speculation about who the person was. Um, some people believe that it was a, uh, a person that lived in Iowa and, and passed away a few years ago. But, you know, the time when these were put up was 1980. And we were still in the Cold War. And I remember these times very well, as I'm sure you do, too. There was a lot of, of talk and a lot of fear about nuclear war. And the context of the stones and the message behind the stones was that if there was a nuclear war and the human race survived, that the Georgia Guidestones, the message that's carved in several languages, was supposed to be guide, guidelines for the race that survived to, to, to live and survive, uh, survive going forward. And so when you look at the thing that's got everybody bent out of shape, well, there's actually two things. One is the keep the population at 500,000, or excuse me, 500, 500 million, million, yeah. 500 million. 
you know, this is what gets, you know, everybody, everybody bent out of shape. And I've read things where people said, well, this, this monument says that there's going to be eradication of seven and a half billion people. I mean, where do they come up with that? It does not say that. Um, if you understand the context, you would never even go to that. Well, what's so ironic is we have not been as close to all-out global thermonuclear war since these stones were put in place. Putin tonight, Ukraine, all it takes is one errant message, and we're really in it. And to me, the coincidence of destroying this Stonehenge time capsule in, in, in the light of what's going on geopolitically right now on earth tonight i think they could possibly be connected and then the rapidity where they were eradicated by an official government as opposed to investigating an obvious crime barbara let me come to you because there are such overtones of the whole 9-11 scenario and the steel shift to china and all that after the trade towers came down i find eerie eerie parallels (laughs) You mean eerie par- parallels to the destruction of the guardstones? Yep. Well, um, yes, I guess you could go there. Um, as you know, <laughs> I've been uh, a leader of the 9-11 Truth Movement for over 20 years, and I'm now the uh, chairman of the board, co-chairman of the board of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, um, which is really the most important organization for 9-11 Truth on the planet. And we are very, very clear that the evidence overwhelmingly supports that 9-11 was a self-attack. Um, I know Scott doesn't like to hear that. He, he told me that in Scotland, but it's, <laughs> it's a fact. And uh, given that, um, I think there are parallels uh, because there were pre-placed explosives both in the World Trade Center towers, in the Pentagon, and also at the Georgia See, the parallel I see is inside inside jobs screaming from both events. Because you don't get this whole thing destroyed by by the government of Georgia without very high level, get rid of it, get rid of it. It's it's, it's something we don't want to talk about. Just get rid of it and make a public safety claim. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's that's the parallel as I see it. But but go ahead, back, back to Scott until we get into the meat of today's program. Okay. Um, all right. Let me, let me shift gears here. You guys just went on an extraordinary experience, um, looking over, walking through, visiting, having dinner in a series of remarkable middle evil monuments and castles and other uh, um, objects there in Scotland. Um, how did you guys, how did you guys meet and wind up going on this tour together. Uh, you want me to answer that first? Or yeah, sure, Scott? sure. Well, I don't think Scott knows this, but it was quite a quite a synchronicity. And uh, you know, I got my master's degree studying synchronicity, and the first ever graduate, fully accredited graduate program in the United States or the world in uh, consciousness studies and experimental parapsychology. So I'm into synchronicity big time. Um, there was quite a synchronicity, and that is my partners here in California in the Monterey Peninsula of California, my partner's best friend for, you know, decades of its life. And we're in our seventies. Um, 
uh, Rob, who lives in Pennsylvania, who's probably listening to the show tonight. We've alerted him to it. Um, Rob let Danny know uh, about this tour because he was hoping to go on it. Ah. And then he couldn't go on it. I won't go into the private details of that. But he had sent us, he'd sent Danny, who showed me, uh, the flyer, uh, which is um, the banner for the show on the homepage uh, tonight for this show uh, is taken from that flyer. So I got the flyer and I saw it and I said, oh, well, that's only about, I don't know, it's only about two and a half weeks away. I really want to go on that. (laughs) So I called up, uh, I, I emailed Haley. And she immediately got back and she said, yes, there's still a few seats in the van and we would love to have you. Um, so I went. I mean, I turned the world upside down to be there. <laughs> and I will, I will let you know that um, Scott and Haley were just wonderful guides. I mean, talk about the guide stones. They were wonderful guides. <laughs> it was a great, great, great tour. I highly recommend it. Anything that Scott and or Haley do or Scott or Haley do together, I highly recommend. And hopefully on the show, Scott will let us know what, what's planned in, in the future for tours. Yeah, let me go back to Scott. <laughs> Scott, I yeah. didn't know in addition to your television career and that really fascinating uh, program, and I'm not a big fan of mainstream television, but they apparently let you follow your nose and your head and your instincts, and it really is, you know, must-see television. I didn't know you had this other, you know, tour thing going. Talk about how that came up, and when are you going to be doing it here in the United States? I, you know, I I have to give all credit to Haley because it was her idea to do this, and you know, it was it was right up my alley because I'm doing quite a bit of research now and hopefully if things work out, we'll, we'll be doing some type of a, uh, a production either on television, uh, maybe on cable, maybe streamed. I, I don't know. We'll see, but it has to do a lot with Knights Templar and a big part of the story of the Templars and their eventual uh, making, um, making their way to North America obviously takes place in Scotland. And so a lot of the places that we went were uh, in the vein of that story. And uh, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. We had some wonderful surprises that happened and, you know, I just want to go back and, 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 you know, say kind of echo what Barbara said, we had a fabulous group. I mean, it really was a great group of people as, as Barbara knows, everybody got along great. There weren't that, you know, whenever you get a group of 10 or more people together, it seems like there's always one or two that sort of, um, you know, everybody kind of says, Oh gosh, it's them. Mm. And we didn't, we, we didn't have any of that. And Barbara, you know what I'm talking about? Everybody got along. We yeah. had a great time. And even when, you know, we had that kind of, uh, freewheel it, you know, like when we couldn't get over to, to, um, um, uh, oh God, where was it? Ol- Oban? Oban. Uh, uh, we couldn't get there because of no, weather. No, no, Iona. The, the, Iona, 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 that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And, um, the weather was so bad. I mean, we almost made it, but we decided not to go because we didn't know if we'd get back. Is this an but island? 
Is this an island? Yeah, off? It was an it's island. Like, in an island. In oh, so in bad weather, you do not want to take a small cabin cruiser in a choppy sea. No. Well, no. Even, they wouldn't even let the large uh, ferry go. <laughs> no, it was a large ferry, and it was wicked. The wind was blowing. The waves were crashing, and it was – I wasn't uh, wild about going So was there. this the first tour you've ever led, Scott? Yes, it is. Yes. Oh, my God. We're in at the birth of something. See, I didn't know that. I thought you'd done a whole bunch of them. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, I've, I've taken people out in the field, and I've certainly done my share of hosting. Right. Uh, you know, a television show. But, no, this was the first time I had done a tour. And, oh, my. Um, it was Haley's brainchild. And, you know, I was – it worked out great. Um I would I, like to add, if I could, that um, uh, I I took the liberty, Scott, of uh, sending Keith Morgan, who's the producer for the show tonight, yeah. uh, to the other side of midnight. I took the liberty of sending him the detailed itinerary for the tour, which he's okay. now made um, one of your items along with the Georgia Guidestone photos. Okay. So everybody Wonderful. should go there. Maybe, Richard, you want to tell people how to go there and see all the incredible places that Haley and Scott uh, went with us on this tour Uh-oh. that was on June 5th to 12th. Okay. Well, I'm clicking on his items. Uh, yeah. Yes, we've got Guidestone. It should be close to the top, actually, I think. Oh, no. no. Well, Barbara, That's let me ask you this. Item. Oh, here we are. Yeah, it, 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 it's item number one. Scotland mm-hmm. Tour Itinerary. Yeah, just click on uh, click on the the, uh, the word Scotland tour itinerary, and hopefully, uh, well, it didn't come up. Um, Keith needs to fix that. Mm, came up for me. Oh, it downloaded. Okay, so for some people, like on my computer, it may download. And you yeah, to... it says download file in Word, yeah. but I'm incredible getting... places, and uh, maybe yeah. we can talk about some of those places. I expect Scott will do that. But Scott, you were going to say something. I was going to ask you, what was your favorite, favorite place? Well, when I get into my part of the show here, (laughs) the meat of everything, the core, um, it had to be Scone Palace. And the reason is, as as I think you know, I focus on the ancient Egyptian connection to Maritime, Skoda, after whom Scotland is named, and the stone of Scone is also called Skoda Stone on which the uh, Irish kings were crowned at Terra. Then it was brought to the sacred Isle of Iona, where unfortunately we couldn't go because of the weather. Um, but I, I, I did go to Iona back on my honeymoon in 1994 in July. I've been to almost all the places, almost all the places on this tour, but not all. All right. I'll tell you what, uh, Scott, let me start with Barbara because I want to start chronologically because when I was writing the promo last night, it really struck me that if it hadn't been for this weird little twist of fate, we could have been Scotsmen. And, <laughs> and the George Washington, who, of course, has a Scottish background, could have been the father of his country. But it would have been not America, but New Scotland or Nova Scotia, you know, writ large all over the continent. And, and that, to me, is amazing because... If you trace the lineage back then, it would mean yep. if this is documented research, Barbara, that in some level we're ancient Egyptians. Yeah. And, and, the, yeah. and the bizarre thing that I made note of is, and I kind of noticed this many years ago, 
There are so many accoutrements and attachments of the founding fathers to ancient Egypt, up to and including, and I'll bet not one person in a million knows this, the very title president, you know, which is the head of state of the United States of America, and now by imitation, a lot of other nations around the world. But the very name president, the title president, in ancient Egyptian means first of the Westerners, meaning the those who have gone before, those who are no longer in three dimensions, those who are part of the landscape of the Giza Plateau and the pyramids to the west of the Nile. And so when you said that, and this goes back to uh, Scotia and Nefertiti, and he, in other words, let's start there. How yeah. the heck did Nefertiti's daughter wind up in Scotland, and how did a Queen Scota wind up giving her name to an entire island kingdom at a time when her real name in Egypt was something totally different? Right. Well, I'd like to begin, if I could, um, with how I got into this absolutely phenomenal history to begin with that totally blew my mind and took my life. You know, if you can think of your life uh, when you're born going on a particular track and then there's, a, you know, the railroad guy who pulls a switch and suddenly you're on an entirely different track. <laughs> well, yes. that's what happened when I saw, I came into possession in the early 1990s into the possession of the physical coronation program, which I still have, of Queen Victoria's successor to the crown of Great Britain and the whole, you know, Commonwealth. And I came into the possession of it, which is a phenomenal synchronicity, because my husband, who is a saint, who was, he's deceased, was a St. Clair. His name was Professor Dr. Richard St. Clair Murray, or Richard Clair Murray. Hmm. So he came into the possession of this coronation program of Queen Victoria's successor king over the whole British Empire in, I think it was 1902, was the coronation uh, year. Um, and this coronation program, the very first paragraph with the big embossed letter on the inside of the program, the outside of the program, of course, just says it's the program and what it's the program for. You open it up, and at the very top, Left. It says in words that the authority and the legitimacy of the monarch you are about to see crowned comes from the stone in the chair. Hmm. I mean, that blew my mind. I said, what? <laughs> I, I had to read it out loud to Richard. It was then my fiance um, about five times. I said, am I, am I reading this correctly? I handed the program to him. He said, yes, you're reading it correctly. And it started my life on an entirely new track, all about ancient Egypt and Scotland, all of it. So anyway, that's, uh, and by the way, they had the program. My husband inherited the program from his father, who had inherited it from my husband's grandfather. And the reason they had it is that Richard's grandfather took his father, who was an only child, an only son and an only child, um, to Westminster Cathedral, Westminster Abbey, for the coronation because they were invited. And there's another story in that because my husband, my husband's grandfather was one of the many illegitimate grandsons of Queen Victoria by her very promiscuous sons when they were young men. Um, so anyway, so 
if everybody could go to my items, I'm going to lay out this phenomenal story as quickly as I can because I'm going to end. I'm going to end with where most of the research about the Templars or the core research about the Templars of Scott and everything that he does then takes off because the story that we begin with goes back to the mid-1300s B.C. And and the Templar story that Scott's going to tell us about um, gets really ticked off almost exactly the same amount of time, A.D. Okay, we've got about two minutes to the top of the hour, so set up the premise. Um, So what we're going to do after the top of the hour, everybody needs to go to my items, and you want to tell people how to do that? You go to the banner for tonight's show for Saturday, uh, Scotland on Earth. Click on that. That will take you to the guest page. Under the banner on the guest page, there are fast links to items. Click on Barbara. That will take you to her item number one. Right. Okay. So I'm going to um, set the scene here um, with item number one just before the break, and it looks like three minutes. And what you are seeing in item number one is the coronation chair of every single king and queen of the British Empire, um, every single one of them after the year 1296. That's a very long time ago. And you will see that there is a stone right under the seat of that coronation chair, which the chair is in Westminster Cathedral, Westminster Abbey in London. And that is where the coronations take place. Um, And that stone has many names. One of the names of the stone is the Stone of Destiny. The other one is Skoda Stone. Now, Skoda is spelled S-C-O-T-A. Sometimes it's spelled S-C-O-T-I-A. And Skoda was the uh, eldest daughter, the crown princess of the most famous pharaoh of ancient Egypt, Pharaoh Akhenaten, and his queen wife, uh, high wife, Nefertiti. And that stone was taken by Skoda and an entourage on ships into the Mediterranean out of Gibraltar and ended up in Ireland, where it became the coronation stone of the ancient Irish kings. And it went to Iona, the famous sacred Scottish Isle of Iona, where St. Columba became the patron saint of all of Scotland. Um, Depending upon which scholarship you follow, the one that I do, um, uh, St. Columba took the stone and his um, followers also later took his reliquary. Okay, Barbara, we have to pause. My guests this morning are Scott Walter and Barbara Honiger. Georgia Lambert's joining us in the third hour. We're playing Scottish music, bagpipes tonight, uh, in honor of this extraordinary deep dive into both ancient and slightly more modern Scottish history. Could we be ancient Egyptians by way of Scotland? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, July 9th, here in the good old USA from the Landman Champlain in New Mexico. And yes, we are hearing the Scottish land, Scotland the Brave, pipes and drums in high def. I love bagpipes. So maybe I am Scottish at heart. Anyway, Barbara, take us back to 3,000 plus years ago and answer me one question, if you would. How did a, um, uh, you know, Egyptian queen whose name was Minotan, how did she wind up with an appellation like Queen Skoda? Well, that was her Celtic name. Ah, you have to describe Celts. And yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, the, this basically the history of the Scots now in Scotland, that they came, um, almost all of them, from northeastern Scotland, uh, northeastern Ireland, known as the Dalradius, Dalradius uh, Irish. And uh, there were basically, depending on the history you read, about five uh, kings uh, of that area of northeastern Ireland. And those are the people who... Across uh, the the Irish Sea there, and um, came over to Scotland, uh, and eventually uh, intermarried with, uh, defeated really, and intermarried with the Picts, who were the natives of what is today Scotland, and now they're, you know, the bloodline is there together. Um, but um, you know, I'd like to give you the bottom line of 30 to 40 years of my research, and then we'll go into my items which will tell the story in chronological order. Okay. Um, the bottom line of my research is that the crown princess of Akhenaten, the most famous pharaoh of ancient Egypt, she is queen and high wife Nefertiti. They didn't have any sons or living sons. They only had six or seven daughters, and she was the eldest. Um, this was a period of time when um, a plague came over Egypt, and also Akhenaten, as you probably know, was extremely unpopular by the polytheistic, uh, uh, you know, the priests of the of Amun, 
when Akhenaten uh, simply created a brand new capital called Amarna today uh, and uh, created it from scratch and moved everybody who was anybody there. Uh, and we're talking about the mid-1300s B.C., Akhenaten only reigned for about 19 years, at about year 14 into his 19-year reign. Nefertiti basically disappears. And according to the latest history that I've just read, a book called, not surprisingly, Akhenaten, um, the latest history, which is supported in the book, is that um, that uh, Akhenaten then married Meritas, uh, his eldest daughter, the crown princess. Now, uh, there was a huge amount of incest that basically all there was because the pharaohs uh, married their sisters usually but in this case he married his daughter his eldest daughter and they had a child uh, and then Akhenaten disappears from the record in year 19 and then according to this latest book based on the latest scholarship titled Akhenaten that Akhenaten when when he leaves the scene presumably killed or died of the plague uh, then Meritaten uh, marries uh, Semenkari, I believe is the way you pronounce the name. I'm probably totally mispronounced. <laughs> but anyway, Pharaoh Semenkari, she marries him and they have a daughter, only daughters throughout this whole lineage. Uh, and then when he disappears from the scene, then she soon disappears from the scene. Now that's when, according to the history that I think is the best supported, that she leaves. Now there would be a reason for her to have to leave uh, to have to leave Egypt, and that is that the uh, priests of Amun returned to power, and they put Skoda's half-sibling, the famous King Tut, on the throne, underage child. So the priests become the regents and rule him, and of course he also died young. So anyway, there's a reason that she would have left England, or excuse me, that he, she would have left or had to leave for her safety. And because of who she was, she would have had a retinue, which we know that she did. So if you go to number two of my items, it's a fantastic book called Kingdom of the Ark, the startling story of how the ancient British race, I don't like the word race, but the ancient no, British no, are, dis- are no. descended from the pharaohs of ancient Egypt. This is by Lorraine Evans, and it is a supported book. Um, one of the um, well, ancient, when you when you say supported, what do you mean? Well, I was just about to give you an example in the next clause, um, and that is that, for instance, in the book you learn that um, that not too many years ago, uh, one of the ancient Egyptian ships uh, was found. It got scuttled, and they found the beautiful seances. Um, similar to the ones that Nefertiti wore, which you would expect uh, Skoda to have worn uh, because she, according to this most recent history in the book Akhenaten, she actually became queen twice um, before she was forced to flee. Um, So this is a history um, in the mid-1300s BC all the way to the mid-1300s AD of people having to flee their countries mm. and with a stone of destiny that links the two. Of course, Skoda fleeing with the stone. Now, the bottom line of my research for all of these years is I had to ask myself, what is it about this stone that she had to take it with her? It had to be the coronation stone of the ancient Egyptian pharaohs. 
It had to have been Akhenaten and later her own coronation stone. And therefore, it would have been known in ancient Egypt as Mott's stone. So hang on, hang on. Why a stone conveying heavenly authority and governmental legitimacy? How did a stone, how did an artifact become imbued with this ability? Yes. Well, this belief, put it that way. The belief of the ancient pharaohs, which became the beliefs of the high kings of Scotland, which became the beliefs of the uh, kings and queens of ancient Scotland, which in turn became the claims of every single king and queen of the British Empire uh, beginning in 1296. So you you have to infer that this stone had the same claims made about it, the same beliefs made about it back in ancient Egypt. And now we get into a theory, um, but I believe it's a very supported theory. And that is that we know, if you study ancient Egyptian history from the records and and the, um, you know, the, the, the papyrus and, and the, the walls in the tombs and that kind of thing, um, you learn that... Uh, the uh, pharaohs were crowned on a throne and they had their feet on stone. And that stone was called Mat Stone. That's M-A-A-T, the goddess Mat. The goddess Mat was the goddess of truth and justice. And the end of your life, if you were an ancient Egyptian, including the pharaoh himself or herself, in the case of a few of the female pharaohs, um, like Hetchepet, the pharaoh was required to live the laws of Mott. There were 43 laws of Mott. They were like the Ten Commandments, except there were were a heck of a lot more. There were 43. And the pharaoh was actually reconfirmed by the priesthood once a year in a special ceremony after they asked him if he had been, you know, a good good pharaoh and had kept the laws of Mott, the 43 laws laws of Mott Mm. for that past year. So these 43 laws of Mott were were, as it were, embodied in the stone. And the pharaoh had to live the good life, the upright and just life, according to the laws of Mark. Okay, and according it, to what I understand of ancient Egypt, the, the symbology of Mot was a feather in correct. this celestial pan of waiting the heart for correct. good and evil and all that. How did we get to a stone? Well, no, it's the other way around. Um, the belief, uh, you know, Mott was one of the pantheon of the ancient Egyptian gods and goddesses. And she was the goddess of truth and justice. Uh, and her stone was the stone that the pharaohs had to stand on or have their feet on when they sat on the throne. The throne represented Isis and the stone represented Mott, and the feather simply was a symbol for Mott. And the feather is actually a symbol, uh, uh, one of the um, hieroglyphs, okay, that mm. represents um, that represents a, a phoneme. Okay. Do we know how this stone became attributed to kingship, to uh, civility, to establishment government, to solidity to authenticity well um that question goes back to ancient egypt um because skoda 
took not only the stone, but the whole belief system about the stone to Ireland. And it was then uh, used for the crowning of the kings of Ireland on the stone. But the belief system about the stone and the fact that the authority and legitimacy of first the pharaoh and then the kings and queens of Ireland, Scotland, and then the entire British Empire were based upon something inherent in that stone. Now, if you want, if you want me to go way out on my I theory, want you to go. You're on okay. this show. Come on. Of course I want oh. you to go way out. Because I'm right. thinking exactly the thing you're going to say. Go ahead. Well, I happen to believe that the original stone, the original stone, which is not the real stone, which is not the one in the coronation chair that was there since 1296 until it was returned to Scotland, to Edinburgh Castle, exactly 700 years after the evil, truly brutal English king Edward II stole it from Scone Palace, Um it's not the real stone. We'll get into that in a few more of my items here. But what you need to know, um, I believe, not just believe, but it is claimed in the documents in ancient, from ancient Egypt, whether they're on the walls of tombs or in the papyrus or whatever. Um, and that is that the most, the, the sacred, the original sacred stone of ancient Egypt was called um, the Benben stone. Mm. And the ben the Bimben stone had to have been a very large black meteorite. Okay? So that's where they get the idea from heaven that the star fell. It hit into uh, the desert of ancient Egypt. And the priests, the, the people who lived back then, gave it this special significance. There, it doesn't matter what society you're talking about, almost every society on this planet anyway, and maybe Mars too, if we go <laughs> way back, um, every single society on this planet has is based upon a, on a hierarchy of some kind or another. And the people at the top of the hierarchy need to legitimize themselves in the, in the eyes of those that they oppress, basically, and that they use. And this is just one way that an ancient society legitimized its leader okay so the important thing is that they believe this about the coronation stone of the ancient pharaohs which was taken to ireland then to iona the sacred isle mm. uh, where all of the scottish kings were buried and then it was taken to the mainland of scotland to scone palace where we visited and i'm going to scroll down um, but I, I really need to go through, I just need to read this, because I know you asked that question, but people need to understand this history. Okay, so number one, there's Scotus Stone, named for this ancient Egyptian princess, Akhenaten and Nefertiti's daughter, after whom Scotland is named. That's also after whom Nova Scotia is named, which is absolutely central to the whole story of the Templars that Scott will be getting into soon. So she was the eldest daughter of Pharaoh Akhenaten and Nefertiti. This is also known as the Stone of Scone because it ended up at Scone Palace where the kings of Scotland and Queens were crowned. It's also known as the Stone of Destiny. From 1296, when Edward II sent an army, a force of men up to Scone Palace to take the stone. And we now know that that stone was switched. He was not given the real one. But he believed it was the real one and it's been and it was in the coronation chair in Westminster Cathedral where every British king and queen was crowned from 1296 until today. The current Queen Elizabeth II was crowned in that chair on that stone. Why, okay. is, why did the British 
the English, to be accurate, why did they think they needed this stone to legitimize the succession of kings and queens of England? No, they, they wanted to unify Scotland and England, and that was the way that, ah, was the way okay, that well. he thought he could do it. Okay. He wanted to legitimize his brutal takeover of Scotland, basically, like all of the English did for hundreds of years. Okay. Um, this, this, again, goes back to how do the rulers legitimize the horrible things that they do in the eyes of their public, the eyes of their citizens or their subjects? Okay. Well, so, way back when, I was taught it was the so-called divine right of kings, that they had a right because God made them king and you're not. Well, that's why it was so important when I got this coronation program of Queen Victoria's successor king, Bertie, because it is explicit that their authority and their legitimacy comes from the stone. It doesn't, the, the, the program doesn't say, you know, there's the eldest son of the eldest son of the eldest son or the eldest son of the queen or the bloodline or the divine line. So wait, queen. you mean anybody could become, it's kind of like the uh, the whole Camelot thing by pulling the sword out of the... What? The stone. Yeah, out of the stone, right. Okay, so, so Edward II of Scotland, excuse me, of England, is the king of England at the time. In 1296, he goes up and just brutally takes what he thought was the real stone. He was given a substitute, and we'll prove that here in a minute. Um, so, so believe it or not, this is the same king, English King Edward II, who was very soon after that stunningly defeated he stunning, uh, was stunningly defeated by Scotland's famous King Robert the Bruce at Bannockburn in the famous battle at Bannockburn in 1314, which was a military victory, which led to Scotland's law being independent of England's law or the rest of the British Empire's law to this day mm. and carried high in the front of King Robert the Bruce's forces in that battle. According to legends, the reliquy of Scotland's patron saint, St. Columba of the sacred Scottish island of Iona, where we could, didn't get to go on our tour, where Scotus Stone had been held by St. Columba and his followers before later being brought to the Scottish mainland and then to Scone, where the, uh, where the Scottish kings and queens were then crowned. The reliquary and the real stone of Scone were therefore almost certainly brought together to Scotland. According to my best reading of the history by St. Columba himself, although others say after he died. And today, this is where the link comes to the Templars. Today, it is claimed by the Templars in Scotland that they are in possession of the real stone of Scone. The one that was hidden from Edward II's forces in 1296. And he was given a substitute. And that the Scottish Knight Templars intend to bring out the real stone when Scotland finally becomes independent of Britain, which I believe is going to be December 2023, next year. The Scottish National Party has formally announced that Scotland will hold a second referendum on independence in December of 2023. I was personally told that the Scottish Knights Templars today and for centuries previous have been the keepers of the real stone of destiny, the real Scotus stone. And I was told this in person by the number three official in the Scottish National Party, Alexander Murray, JP. JP stands for, well, he was a counselor. I'm looking at his, um, he was provost, he told me, in his living room in Scotland in July of 1994 with my husband on our honeymoon, that he was, that he was provost at, 
he was provost of uh, Kinroth and Perthshire in that year, 1994, and that he was then, then the number three official in the Scottish National Party, which is now in power in Scotland, and he was all, also almost certainly a Templar, though he didn't say so. Okay, number two, I'm going to go through these really quickly. The people need to under, they need to have the foundation of this phenomenal story. The Kingdom of the Ark, the startling story of how the ancient British people are descended from the Pharaoh by Lorraine Evans. It's an absolutely must-read book, as is Scott Walter's book, Akhenaten to the Founding Fathers. Mm. Uh, so both of those books need to be read together. Number three in my items, ancient Egyptian, these are the photographs of ancient, of the, of course, uh, sculptures of the heads of ancient Egyptian Pharaoh Akhenaten, his high queen Nefertiti, and their eldest daughter and crown princess Skoda which is spelled two ways, S-C-O-T-A-S-C-O-T-I-A. Her Egyptian name was Meritaten. Now, there's a scholarship that claims that it was a different Egyptian princess or queen from a different pharaoh, but that's not what I believe is the best scholarship. But I just want you to know that the bottom line is everyone agrees has looked into the history that a Scottish, excuse me, a an ancient Egyptian crown princess slash queen did take the stone of destiny uh, first to Ireland, then to Iona, then to, then to the mainland of Scotland, then to Scone, then down to Westminster, but that was a fake one, and the Scottish Knight Templars have it to this day, and we'll bring it out soon. Okay, uh, number four. Um, this is a photograph. This is phenomenal history. Um, this is a photograph of Prince Andrew at Edinburgh Castle in an incredibly historic ceremony on November 30th, 1996. That was the precise exact anniversary, 700th anniversary of, that should read, King Edward II, not King Edward I, theft of Scotus Stone or the Stone of Destiny from the coronation seat uh, at Scone Palace in Scotland, where we went on the tour with Scott and Haley in Ju- just last month in June. Um, and in this ceremony that was led by, and he's in on the right in the center in the photograph by Prince Andrew, uh, returned the stone, which they claimed down in England uh, was the real stone of destiny, but it wasn't, to its rightful place among the honors of Scotland, which are the crown, the scepter, the sword, and now what they claim is the real stone. The Scottish National Party, as, as I announced, is going to bring out the real stone once the referendum on independence that will come next, December 2023, according to an announcement recently by the Scottish National Party, uh, will be held. The Scottish Knights Templars, many of whom are high-ranking officials in the Scottish National Party, have said that the real stone, as I said, will be brought out then. Number 4A. This is a photograph of the honors of Scotland that I just mentioned, which you can see in Edinburgh Castle. And that was an optional day on the tour. I'd already gone there in 2020, so I didn't need to go again. But a good eight or nine um, or maybe eight or seven or eight of members of the tour that I was on did go in that optional day, day eight. Okay. Now, you need to quickly scroll down to the very bottom of my item because they're a bit out of order. And number 17 is the road sign to the trail to Scotus Grave, which is, you can go to it today. It's near Tralee, Ireland. Mm. And number 18 uh, is the photographs of uh, Scotus Graves uh, at the end of that trail in Ireland. And notice those stones. They're very, very similar to the, um, to what is claimed to be the, 
the stone of destiny that was in the coronation chair in Westminster Cathedral and allegedly the real one or not is now in Edinburgh Castle with the rest of the honors of Scotland, the crowns, the crown jewels of Scotland. Okay. So uh, the next, uh, go to number five. Um, there are a lot of famous people who are really into Skoda and the ancient Egyptian connection to Scotland, Ireland, Scotland, and Scotland. And as Scott will be getting into with the Templars, the uh, Canada, Nova Scotia, and the founding of the United States of America. So number five, Uri Geller has recently bought Skoda's Island. Um, it has another name, but he calls it Skoda's Island. It's also uh, has been called Skoda's Island off the coast of Britain where he believes that um, he wants to uh, dig for ancient Egyptian treasure that he believes is buried there. Number six. Well, even if he only found artifacts, they would be incredible treasure. Uh, any kind of artifact, yeah. Um, and you, that's a photograph of him on the right dousing for where the treasure <laughs> might be. Um, so there are a lot of very famous people, not just Scott Walter, but also Uri Geller and a lot of others. Believe it, believe it or not, somebody else really into Skoda, I mean really into all of this, mm. is none other than um, uh, Mohammed Al-Fayed, who is Dodi Al-Fayed's father. And Dodi Al-Fayed died in, uh, you know, in uh, in the limousine with Princess Diana, mm. right? Okay. Mohammed Al-Fayed is from Egypt. And uh, he is really into Scotus and Scotus stones. Interesting. Um, number six. Now, this I'm going to go through these really quick because they're just important books to read if you're serious about this history. The Search for the Stone of Destiny. This is a very important book. There are photographs of the book and a link to these books on Amazon.com. The Stone of Destiny was book. Each chapter starts chronologically from where legend or documents or claims as to the history of where the stone came from, starting from ancient Egypt with Skoda, with her uh, voyage uh, in the ship, ending up in Ireland, etc. And in on my honeymoon, my husband and I, uh, Dr. Richard Clare Murray, um, St. Clare Murray, we followed the path of the Stone of Destiny chapter by chapter. It's a really wonderful book. A lot of details. Um, now, number six A is super important. And this is a wonderful synchronicity because I wouldn't have known this if it weren't for the fact that I was looking for photographs for my items for this show tonight. And I came across this absolutely phenomenal um, recent find um, unearthed from the 500s in Scotland um, that proves that the stone of scone that English and English king, and that should read Edward II, not Edward I, sold from stone stole from Scone Palace in 1296 and you can read why that is um, that is proven uh, by that phenomenal uh, recent uh, document that was pulled out of a peat bog and miraculously the uh, the text was able to be recovered using oh my, my well peat does preserve very ancient things yes and there's panic acid in the peat yep exactly it's which helps preserve it. And it was preserved and it could be read. So you've just got to read that. Now I want to point out when the real stone is finally brought out by the, by the Scottish Knight Templars, when Scotland finally becomes independent, which could be as early as December of next year, 2023, it needs to be geologically analyzed and the results compared to similarly appearing stones in Egypt. And who would be perfectly positioned to do that? None other than Scott Walter. (laughs) Okay. Okay, Scott, this is kind of like a foreshadowing. Okay, we're at the bottom of the hour. 
My guest this morning, who's been holding court, is uh, Barbara Honiger, who has this extraordinary deep fascination and research chops when it comes to connections between ancient Egypt and Scotland. And believe me, the things are just getting interesting. We're going to be joined by Georgia in about half an hour. And when we come back, we're going to uh, segue from Barbara to Scott. And... uh, Barbara has given him an interesting challenge. Validate the book, the notebooks. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and my favorite music is in the background. There must be something Scottish in my heritage. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this uh, Saturday night, grading into Sunday morning here in the land of enchantment. My guests so far are Scott Walter and Barbara Honiger, and Barbara is kind of at the end of her description of the connection, this really fascinating, documentable connection between ancient Egyptians, the daughter of infamous Egyptian queen, Nefertiti, I say infamous because of the enormous echoes down through history of this remarkable statue that was uncovered many, many, many decades ago. And now we have her daughter on a trip, a one-way trip probably, to the northern climes of Ireland and then Scotland and the emplacement of a whole new kingdom as an offshoot from ancient Egypt. I mean, it basically is a story that we need a movie. We really need a movie on this. Oh, yes. Yeah, I went to Amarna um, with uh, Zawi Hawa. He's not one of my favorite people, actually. Um, But he gives you unbelievable access to the sites, 
to the temples and pyramids and such. And um, so over dinner, I said, you know, uh, Zawi, uh, I'd really like to go to Amarna. And he snapped his fingers and he said, Mustafa. And Mustafa raced over and he said, arrange for Barbara to go to Amarna. <laughs> wow. And that's where that's where that famous bust of Nefertiti that is still um, in the uh, what used to be the East German um, a museum and is now in uh, the you know where it used to be, but it's now just Germany. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Okay, please continue because I want to come back to Scott. Oh well, uh, okay, um, I'm almost done uh, because really most of the, almost all of the rest of what I have here um, are books that I think people are people really should read. Um, and but number six C is important. Um, Scottish patriots, you know, current day Scottish patriots have been heralding the return of the real stone of destiny for years. And this is one of them. He's, uh, you know, holding up on the right, uh, the fake stone and on the left. And it says, can you see the difference? <laughs> so uh, and then number 6D, uh, this is one of the places that Scott and Haley took us on the tour in uh, June 5th through 12th, the Scotland Unearthed Tour, which I just learned was the first tour that Scott had ever done. That blew my mind. Um, I got in on the ground floor of that. You see, professionals, Barbara, make it look easy. Right, Scott? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. It's easy for Scott. I agree with him. She did the hard work, and she does a fantastic. Number 60 uh, is a, uh, a photo. Um, just like it was when we were there in mid-June, um, early to mid-June. And that is the, um, the famous uh, seat uh, at Scone Palace where the Scottish kings were crowned until 1296 when the evil uh, British king, Edward II, thought he took the real one. Um, that's, of course, a replica there. Um, but it, this is important. I don't know if Scott knows this. But it was, uh, I just learned the other day, that the Scottish National Party has also recently announced that they intend to move the stone that they still claim is the real one uh, that's now in Edinburgh Castle since November of 1996 when it was moved there from Westminster in the chair um, by Prince Andrew. Um, they claim that they're going to move it from Edinburgh Castle um, back there to Scone in the near future. Now, in my opinion, what they have in mind is to do that once Scotland becomes independent. And mark my words, the Templars are going to bring out who they believe should be the first king or queen, probably king, but possibly queen, of Scotland, truly legitimate queen or king of Scotland, to be crowned on the real stone since 1296. Um, so 6E is just a photograph of Queen Elizabeth back in, I think it was, 1952. 1952, when she was her coronation ceremony, and there's the coronation chair with a stone you can see in it behind her. She's just gotten out of the chair. And here are these books. So you can look at them for yourself. The Stone of Destiny, very important book. The True Story by Ian Hamilton, who was one of the four Glasgow University students, who in 1950 went down and hid at night inside Westminster Cathedral and got the stone that the British have claimed was the real one out and got it back over the border to Scotland. Phenomenal. They then, a year and a half later, uh, I think unfortunately or foolishly returned it to England. However, a deal was cut, and the deal was cut that it would be returned after 
a delay to save face by the Crown of England would be returned on the precise 700th anniversary of the date that Edward II stole it from Scone. And that in fact happened, which is the date of that photograph above of Prince Andrew returning it to Edinburgh Castle, what they claimed was the real stone. And then number nine, uh, The Stone of Destiny, Reclaiming the Mystic Relic. Number 10, that's another book about the Stone of Destiny. Number 10 is a very important book, Bannockburn, The Battle for a Nation. I got that uh, in the visitor center at um, Bannockburn, where Scott and Haley took us on the tour. And I've now carefully read that book. And I will tell you what's the most interesting in that book, which um, the Visitor Center and also the book claim is the latest and the best book based on the latest scholarship. There's absolutely no mention of the Knights Templars, none whatsoever at Bannockburn, from any document, from anything except from a myth or a legend. However, I did find something extremely important at the very beginning of that book, like page one after the, after the preface or the introduction. And on the very first page or two of the first chapter, you learn that the Battle of Bannockburn was fought on the feast day of St. John the Baptist in 1314, which also happened to be summer solstice, midsummer's day that, mm-hmm. that year. And guess what? The patron saint of the Knights Templars is St. John the Baptist. So I'm going to turn it over to you and Scott. Oh, no. Uh, that's interesting. Read the rest. Scott, why don't we start with Templars? Who are the Templars? Why did they wind up in Scotland of all places? Talk about the uh, Sinclairs. Because Robin, I don't know whether you know this, Barbara, but before Robin and I you know, got together, she actually went out with a member of the Sinclair family who still, <laughs> who still lives in Hawaii. Well, she made the better choice. She made the better choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. So, Scott, okay. Now, by the way, uh, at, at what point do we bring up the idea that Freemasons and Templars are kind of like various shades of the same book? Yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> you know, that's one of the um, hotly debated questions in Freemasonry. And, and just... Um, in the interest of full disclosure, I am a Freemason. Um, I'm also a Scottish Rite Freemason, 32nd degree, uh, and I am a Masonic Knights Templar, uh, and I'm also a member of a couple of uh, Templar orders that are non-Masonic. So getting back to that question of the connection between the uh, medieval Templars and Freemasonry, Is there a connection? In my view, absolutely the answer is yes. And in fact, we are currently about six years into vetting a set of uh, lengthy documents we call the Sinclair Weems Journey Mm. uh, journals that make this um, connection between the two patently obvious and proves without a doubt that there is a connection as well as many other interesting things that... Freemasonry has lost over the last two and a half centuries since uh, since our country was founded. But anyway, getting back to your question about how the Templars were founded, um, it's it's you know the the I guess the standard version that you would you you would read that most scholars say is that uh, they were founded in probably 1118 when Hugh de Pay and the first Grand Master. Um, 
basically was crowned in Jerusalem after it had been captured from the Muslims during the First Crusade. But their official founding didn't happen until 1129 when a papal bull was signed by the Pope, uh, making them an official order on January 13th of 1129 uh, at something called the Council of Troyes in Mm. France. And uh, the guy who was responsible for writing the charter for the Knights Templar was a guy by the name of St. Bernard de Clairvaux. And Bernard de Clairvaux is, in my opinion, one of the most important historical figures in the history of the world. Oh, he is all over, and nobody knows him. That's bizarre. And and nobody knows him, and nobody knows him. And so uh, it's it's tragic. But, you know, what's what's interesting is if you look at it, the, uh, the Cistercian order, and I think it's important for people to understand that the Knights Templars were Cistercian monks. They just served a military function within the order, but they were Cistercian. And the Cistercian order was founded originally in 1095 uh, by Robert Molesme, who founded the first Cistercian abbey at Citeaux, France. And then about 18 years later, Bernard joined the order at Citeaux with 30 family members, including two of his uncles who were two of those six knights that founded the Templars in 1118. Um, make no mistake about it. When Bernard joined the Cistercian order, it was essentially a coup d'etat because the Burgundian families that all of his, that he and all of his uh, relatives uh, belonged, um, they took over the order and they had a long range plan, I believe, that started with founding the Cistercians, creating the military uh, order of the, um, the poor knights of Solomon is what they called themselves back then. They, were, they weren't called the Templars for um, a long time after that. But in any case, uh, the Cistercians um, under Bernard's leadership, started with one abbey at Citeaux. He founded the uh, the first daughter abbey at Clairvaux. And by the time he died 40 years later, in 1153, they had 300 abbeys. I mean, think about that growth in 40 years. Uh, and by the time the Templars were put down in 1307, they had over 750 abbeys all across Europe. Uh, into Scandinavia and all the way into the Holy Land. The the success and growth of this order is astounding and nothing else as far as um, a monastic order, the success of a monastic order even comes close. Well, one of the but, things what? that struck me in looking at the history of the Templars, by the way, what does the term Templar mean? Well, it refers to the temple... Um, the Temple of Solomon. The Temple. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm most familiar with the Templars in terms of a cut into modern geopolitical history, because if I'm not mistaken, it was the Knights Templar as part of the Crusades that basically established the first international banking. So you could deposit a draft in some place, go a thousand miles away, and get your money in an exchange that didn't require physical transfer of gold or silver or whatever. It was, it was the first banking by means of a check. 
Well, essentially, what, they were, what, what would happen is if you wanted to go, say, on a crusade uh, and travel, say, from Spain to go to Jerusalem, you could go to a Templar commandery and you could give them your money and they would issue you a letter of credit with a code that you would then be required when you went to Jerusalem, you could um, give them your letter of credit with the code and they'd give you your money. Mm. Uh, and they might actually charge you a bit of a fee. Which so was I a think stunning breakthrough, of, also, that, stunning breakthrough yeah. of that time. Stunning. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, that, that was just one of the things. But, you know, you have to go back to the Cistercians and realize at these abbeys, you know, what they would do is as soon as an abbey filled up with monks and they were ready to start a new one, they would send 12 monks into the wilderness or to um, to visit somebody who owned land, and they would they would say, we would like to build an abbey on your property. Now, you have to understand in medieval times, things are a lot different than they are now, and just daily survival was a challenge. And, you know, this is why abbeys uh, were, were so attractive to the second, third, and fourth sons of families because they weren't in line to inherit anything. And if you joined an abbey, you were guaranteed to have food, clothing, warmth, and your family would be proud of you because you were doing God's work, right? <laughs> and, it, and, and they felt like by having a member of their, their family be connected to these orders that they were uh, in God's good graces, if you will. Mm -hmm. So these 12 monks would go out and approach a landowner and say, we'd like to build an abbey on your property. And they were, they would always want to be away from population centers in the wilderness where they would do their work uh, without anybody bothering them and, and they not bothering anyone. And they would, they would take, and sometimes what would be considered the worst land imaginable. And they would use sheep who could eat just about anything and they would defecate <laughs> and they would take this untillable land and turn it into productive land. And they would, they would um, shear the wool and sell the wool for uh, clothing. They would grow crops and sell the food. Um, they also had foundries. They were making tools. They were making um, carts and, and all kinds of things. And they would sell them at fairs. And what was happening is they were basically undermining the feudalistic system of Europe by using essentially the free enterprise system. So it wasn't just the Templars who were trafficking the money, right, handling the money, but they were also trafficking the goods that their brethren, the Cistercian brethren, were producing, and they were making money hand over fist. So if you look carefully at the history of what was happening with these abbeys, you realize that it wasn't just the Templars that were making money, it was the Cistercians. And this is, this is really one of the untold success stories about the Templars uh, that people are just unaware of. And they became immensely powerful. And the fact that they were issued a, a papal bull, they answered to no one but the Pope. So they basically had free reign to do whatever they wanted, and they became immensely powerful. But by the end of the, uh, the 13th century, things were starting to get a little stale with them. Obviously, the, the story that you hear is that the, the king of France was heavily indebted to the Templars. Yeah, Philip, Philip of, the Fair. Yeah, he was fair. Philip, right. Yeah, Philip the Fair, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? <laughs> 
Yep. <laughs> and uh, the, Philip had just recently installed uh, Pope Clement V, I believe it was, as his uh, slacky uh, to to do his bidding. Didn't and he actually the, command that the Pope had to had to, you know, officiate over the Vatican, not from the Vatican but from France? That's right. At that time, I think that's exactly what happened. And, you know, the Pope before that was not in cahoots with Philip the Fair, so he was executed. Hmm. And, you know, this is this is how they did business back in those days. But the point is, is that both the church and the monarchy, the Philip the Fair, basically aligned together and uh, decided that they were going to put the Templars down on October 13th of 1307. Now, the, the the Templars were ready, though. They were tipped off. They knew what was going to happen, and they knew for probably a good month, if not longer. And when the arrest order came down, one of the first places that the the uh, uh, the king's agents went was to the treasury at the headquarters in Paris of the Templars at that time. Mm-hmm. And guess what? The treasury was empty. <laughs> the other place... The other place the king sent his agents was to uh, the port at La Rochelle on the western side of France, where the Templars had 18 ships loaded with treasures. And when the king's, the king's agents showed up, they were gone. And the, the age-old question that everybody has been trying to solve, and I think we now know the answer to, is where did those ships go and where did those treasures go? But if I would back up for just a second, Richard, back when the Templars captured Jerusalem and were there for probably about six decades until the Muslims did defeat, did defeat them in the latter part of the, uh, of the 1180s. And then it was sort of dicey after that. But for those six decades, the Templars had established essentially a base of operations. Everybody thinks that they captured Jerusalem for Christendom, but that's absolutely not the case. Uh, what they wanted to do was have a base there so that they could go through the region, including into Egypt, where they set up another base of operations, to round up the stuff that they wanted. The stuff that they wanted included wealth, money, documents, technology, and remains. I think they wanted ancient, ancient knowledge. They somehow knew we were not the first, and there were archives, and I think that they and the Vatican got together and said, what a neat cover, you know, shepherding pilgrims well, to no, and no, from. No, this wasn't, this wasn't in cahoots with the Vatican. You have to understand something. One of the things that we um, have written about extensively and um, I know is correct is that the Templars – were not the good Catholics that everybody thinks they were. They actually were monotheists that believed in a single deity that had dualistic aspects. Um, this whole concept of opposites that keep things in balance, like mm-hmm. male, female, heaven and earth, uh, good, bad, light, dark. Um, really, it goes back to Akhenaten. I mean, they are the ideological descendants of Akhenaten and his followers, the Aryans. So, um, yeah, but wait, 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 Scott. Just because I said yep. politically they had made a deal with the Pope doesn't mean the Pope believes what everybody thinks the Pope believes. 
<laughs> okay, that's fine. Well, I'm just telling you that you know people you know people think that the the leadership of the Templars were Catholic and they were anything but that. The symbols and and uh, that the Roman Church uses are are ancient symbols yes, that go back yes. to Egypt and beyond. They were borrowed, but these these were symbols that the Templars. Uh, we're very familiar with. In fact, the Virgin Mary was just a metaphor for the ancient goddess that they truly venerated. In fact, Bernard had such a fascination with the Virgin Mary that some of the popes during his lifetime were not comfortable with how much he venerated the Virgin Mary. And one of the interesting things about Bernard that a lot of people don't know, and I'm going to ask you a question. Do you know what his miracle was? Bernard's? Bernard's miracle. Oh, I'm many years ago. I guess I knew, but I've forgotten. Well, the story goes that he was he was preaching one day in in uh, the the church of the abbey, and there was a statue of the Virgin Mary behind him. And suddenly he turned around and he faced the statue, which suddenly came alive. And mm. then the Virgin bared her breast and started squeezing breast, breast milk out of her breast into his mouth. If you don't believe me, look it up. It's kind In of fact, racy for the Middle Ages, isn't it? Well, you know, some people would say racy, but actually it's, it's just life, right? It's just a mother, you know, feeding, um, uh, providing, you know, providing food. Uh, so and, this was in front of a congregation? Witnesses? Well... <laughs> This is a miracle, okay, Richard? I, I'm not saying that it actually happened. In fact, I'm pretty sure it didn't happen, but but this is the miracle. That's the story. And, uh, you know, take a, take it as you will. But there you well, go. We, well, we have uh, Fatima. We've got other modern apparitions where there are lots and lots of witnesses. How did this story get legs if there were no witnesses? Well... If he was preaching in front of the flock, I guess there would be, right? Yeah, congregation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the songs of the songs of Solomon. Um, yeah, he was um, he was a mystic for sure. And one of the things that he said was, um, he said, "I, I, in my opinion, I learn more from stones in the woods." Than, than what any teacher could teach in school. And hmm. he was also uh, probably, well, I think his true ideology was, was Celtic, but, um, but that's, you know, that's not something that can be verified. But that would be an indication, the fact that he appreciated um, nature and uh, the mysteries well, of, you, of you, the you, world. You, you said earlier when Philip the Fair brought the hammer down on the Knights Templar, and they yeah. obviously had good intel because they all got out of town and they took their ships, they took their treasure. What made them go north to Scotland? Well, um, <laughs> for the, I think the seeds had already been planted there. In fact, Hugh de Pan, this is an interesting fun fact, uh, actually traveled to Scotland and England and Ireland um, in uh, 1128 and 1129. Mm. And that would be the year before and the year of the foundation of the Templars. 
uh, official founding of the Templars. So there is a history of the Templars being in Scotland right from the very beginning. But, you know, those ships that sailed away didn't all go to Scotland, I don't believe. I think some of those ships went to Portugal, some diverted up to Scandinavia, but the ones carrying the treasure went to Scotland. And actually, I mean, what I, what I think, based on some of the research we did before and after the tour, was on the island of Arran, there are massive uh, caves. One in particular that is, is absolutely huge and has some very interesting carvings uh, on the walls inside there that suggest a Masonic connection. And this would be a perfect place. To, I mean, even to this day, it's remote and it's quiet. It's on the western uh, coastline, uh, not far from uh, Kilwinning Abbey. And what I believe is those treasures probably were hidden in the caves there first and then eventually moved to Kilwinning. And there's lots of legends about treasure being hidden under Kilwinning. It was stockpiled there for about 80 years until uh until it was moved to you know to north america but there's something very interesting in our journals and you know barbara had talked about the fact that there's really no scholarly uh information about the templars serving at bannockburn however in our journals there is an entry that talks about how the templars did indeed serve under uh, robert the bruce mm. at bannockburn and because of that, uh, the Scottish earls of the Sinclair families, the Weems and others, were obligated to protect the, the Templars for a number of decades. And it talks about the Templars and their descendants over this period living in the Weems Caves, which is one of the places that we went. And something very exciting happened when we were there. I see we only have 90 seconds. Do you want me to cut off? And, yeah, why or, don't we hold it there? My guests, my guests this morning are Scott Walter and Barbara Honiger. We're going to be joined at the top of the hour in about a minute by Georgia Lambert. And then we're going to hear Scott answer the question. And then we're going to hear him address my question, which is, where is all this going? Why the Templars? And are they active in contemporary history, in geopolitics, in science, and in many other areas? And are we going to see them kind of surface historically with the return of the stone of destiny when Scotland achieves independence? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we have Celtic music in the background to take us out. We shall return.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on the other side of midnight. It is now the witching hour here in the Land of Enchantment. It is Sunday morning. So welcome back to our guests, Scott Walter and Barbara Honiger. And I believe we have Georgia Lambert with us. Georgia, are you with us? I am. Good evening. Super. Okay, let me go back to Scott, and then we'll pick up on you. Uh, Scott, we we need to get the, uh, the uh, Templars to... Uh, Scotland, and we need to figure out what it was they were doing there. Did they use it as a kind of a launching platform to explore the New World and Oak Island, which everybody, of course, is known about now because of the uh, uh, television series? How does Oak Island fit into this if it does? Well, it does fit in, but um, in a nutshell, basically what happened is because of all the political turmoil that went on from 1314 up until 1395 and 1398 they just weren't able to get over to the to the new world or what they called the western lands in the journals um which is some a place that they had already been many times um just following in the footsteps of the uh, of the vikings right the norse the pagan norse um you know the scottish earls were beholden to the uh to the king of Norway. And in fact, we read in the journals, Earl Henry travels to Norway to meet with the, with the king and brief him on, um, you know, events going on in Scotland. And he was a ship captain. And if you don't think that ship captains talk and learn about uh, places and about, um, you know, all matters of sailing in the, in the North Atlantic at that time, you'd be silly. So they knew all about the Western lands and, in 1395 and 1398, that was when they brought the treasures over. And they also brought over 120 descendants of the Knights Templar who were still Knights Templar. They were knighting them all through that time in the 14th century. And they buried those treasures in multiple places, including on Oak Island. And uh, they left them there for some day. Um, the whole mission was called the Covenant. Mm. And... 
the idea was they wanted to establish what they called a free Templar state. And the obligation was passed on to the, um, you know, the, the next generation that was required to visit the Western lands and make sure the treasures were safe. And this went on for about 15 generations. It sounds uh, like the movie, like National Treasure. Well, <laughs> it's pretty much the same. It's pretty much, uh, that is the correct story. I mean, it's, it's, it's not too far off. Uh, wow. The details of the story are actually better than the movie, frankly. Uh, I would but, say, yeah. well, we could always have another one. Okay, look, we've got a lot to go through and not much time, so let me ask you this. Um, the Knights Templar, what was their how, – how did you wind up with these journals that you keep referencing? And without giving away any uh, you know, state secrets, whose are they? How did you acquire them? How are you vetting their authenticity, and what do they tell us that, frankly, given you've been at this over half a decade, that kind of substantiates a lot of what used to be myth and lore about the Knights Templar? Right. Well, um, somebody contacted me who had watched watched uh, our our show and watched Holy Grail in America and the work that we have done. Uh, on the Knights Templar, you know, Templars in America basically is the research that I focused on, starting with the Kensington Runestone, the Newport Tower, and a number of other artifacts that are directly connected to pre-Columbian Templars being in North America. And uh, this person uh, showed me these journals and uh, and a map, a, a lambskin map that was uh, – so were they what, like leather bound? Were there like a half no, a dozen? What? No, no. These things were recopied in the early part of the of the 19th century, back around sometime around 1830. So the originals, um, well, the originals. There's a few originals of the latter ones, but the early ones that were on um, uh, papyrus are, are papyrus. We don't. We, you know, these are copies. Okay. what we have so so we've been spending time with masonic scholars uh, people with associated with the philolathe society which is the academic branch of freemasonry we've worked with uh people uh at the grand lodge of scotland uh in the grand lodge of england um and i can tell you that so far we don't have any red flags we have Okay, who are who are these supposed to be the journals of? Who wrote them? Well, the first three books were written by Earl Henry Sinclair. Oh, the guy himself? The guy himself. The big guy, yep. Mr. S okay. <laughs> yep, and they start in uh, – the first entry is made in 1353 when his father gives him a journal and tells him to write down things that he should remember when he is an adult. And he does that, and he's very diligent and, and detailed. And he, um, uh, the story that he tells about his trips, he, he made three trips in total. He went once when he, with his father when he was eight years old. Um, then he went two more times in 1395 and 1398, and they deposited a lot of treasure there. And then the obligation was passed down to five generations of 
of Sinclair's. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, you, you missed something. He went where? To the Western Lands. Oh, okay, okay. Nova Scotia. To Nova Scotia. Barbara, we can hear you. Okay, yeah, I just added to Nova Scotia. The islands are. Yep. And um, the uh, the third generation was William the Builder, who is uh, the one that uh, built Roslyn Chapel. And one of the things that we learn in the journals is why he built Roslyn Chapel. And um, the, then the journals pass two generations later to the Weems family. And for the next 10 generations, uh, they visited the Western lands. The tradition was you were to visit the Western lands twice in your lifetime, once with your father and once with your son. And they did that. There were only two of the 15 generations that were not able to go. Uh, one of them was the son of William, uh, of Earl Henry Sinclair, William Sinclair, mm. who spent most of his adult life in the Tower of London as a political prisoner. So <laughs> kind of hard for him to get away. But it was also very expensive. So, um, you know, it took a lot to do this. But eventually, in 1769, the last generation of Weems... Um, now, did up, the Weems it, and the Sinclairs intermarry? Oh, yeah. And how do, yep. you, uh, how do you spell Weems? Well, before they came to America, it was spelled W-E-M-Y-S-S. And then after they came to the States, it was spelled W-E-E-M-S. Ah. And both will Google properly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You're not going to read anything about this, though. This isn't published yet. Only, only book one of Earl Henry's... Journal has so when published. you did the TV special on on the Templars, someone came out of the woodwork and said, uh, "I've got something you might want to take a look at." Well, actually, if you want to know the the story, I got an email from this this woman, oh. and she said, "I have the journals of Earl Henry Sinclair," and I said to myself, <laughs> "Sure you do, honey. Delete." Oh. I swear to God. You and didn't. Then, you uh, didn't. I got, I got oh. another. I got another email the next day. I deleted that one. A week later, she well, she since told me she goes, I was going to try you one more time, and she sent me some photographs, and then I called her. So okay. <laughs> that's that's the way it happened. Boy, you're hard ass, really, really. Do you know uh, how many emails I, I get? Yeah, I Richard? get I get a lot, but I but I try to keep an open filter because you never know what walks in. Through the no, 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 no. You cannot possibly go through hundreds and thousands of emails. I can't do it. I just, it's not humanly possible. Can you, can you hear me, Richard? Yes, I can. Yeah. Um, Scott, I'd just like to give you um, probably the most important piece of feedback from that wonderful, wonderful tour is I'll bet we would have all liked, but I definitely would have wanted to have your Lecture the last two hours of the last night of the last day of the tour up front <laughs> uh, because the content of the journals, even in a nutshell, um, it, it's like it's like you took us to all these incredible places, but they were like pieces of a puzzle, uh, whereas the journals are like the picture on the box yeah. of the puzzle. And um, if you do it again, 
uh, I would hope that you would at least give Well, a, you understand uh, that he's just a tyro at this. Come on. Well, <laughs> no, no, no. No, you know what? I mean, I mean, Barbara, this this is good feedback because Haley and I talked about that. Um, you know, when do we when do we talk about a big unveiling? What do we talk about when, you know? And so you know, it's one thing to, you know, when we wanted to have a lecture at the front end and a lecture at the back end, but I think you're right. I think for, for that tour, it would have been good to have that, uh, some of that information. Well, it puts everything in a totally new light because yeah. from what you've done so far, the journals are real. The context of history is extraordinary. And yet yep. Barbara's, see, I, I have the same tendency you do. I like telling stories in chronological order. And sometimes you got to break that rule and you don't bury the lead, as we used to say. in the Oh, well, yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's such a lead and it makes sense of everything where we went. Um, the other thing I want to make sure you get to, uh, Scott, is to um, let the audience and Richard know and, and Georgia Lambert um, about what the journals say about uh, Benjamin Franklin actually going up to the Scottish Islands and bringing some of the treasure back to finance the American Revolution. It's national treasure for real. Ah, amazing. Well, wait, wait. I think, uh, you know, well, Ben Franklin didn't go up there. He just inspired the, you know, the young men to go up there. Okay, well, I was close. But he was, yeah, he did do that. But... You know, I don't know, Barbara, if you if you remember this, but during the tour, something amazing happened that I we didn't really say much about because people wouldn't have understood it without the context. But when we were in the Bell Cave, one of the archaeologists, the guys that was carrying the the hard hats, it was one of the Weems Caves, by the way. Yeah, we went that, into that the Weems Caves, the very the very caves where the Templars were hiding out, right, for decades. And, yeah. and and what he said to me was, in passing, he said, yeah, you know, a couple of years ago, we did an archaeological dig, and we found evidence of a forge. And I looked at him, and I said, a forge? I said, are you kidding me? And he said, no, I'm not. And, and I said, oh, you're not going to believe this. But one of the entries in the journals that was written in 1376, I think, I can't remember the date exactly right now, but... Earl Henry writes that they took medicine, food, and clothing to the Templars in the caves during the winter, and they traded with them for swords that they had been making. And nobody has known, first of all, didn't know anything about them being in there at all, but secondly, nobody knew about this obscure entry, and this guy comes out of the blue and tells me they just (laughs) found evidence of a forge. That's huge it's huge it's, it's a real confirmation and validation point which you didn't which you did mention in that last lecture the last okay lecture. yep i guess i did but that is you know that's independent confirmation does it, it prove definitively the journals are authentic no but boy it sure it sure pushes the ball down the field well, in well, a big way. all right guys 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 yeah, what, so what? richard hold on hold on another thing uh, that really stood out for me is a huge flag in the journals that you mentioned in the lecture the last night was, if I recall correctly, that in April, I believe you said, that in the spring of 1307, which was the same year later in October, 
that uh, Jacques de Molay and some 60, I think you said, of, the, of his uh, Templars were um, arrested and later uh, assassinated, uh, burned at the stake in France, um, that in 1307, a few months before uh, they were arrested, um, none other than Robert the Bruce goes yep. to the Isle of Aaron, where we can infer that he was scouting for a perfect place for them to hide the treasure. Well, and in fact, he visited uh, the King's Cave, what, which is what I'm talking about. He was yes. actually there. So yes. the question is, why was he there? It was only a few months before the put down and the treasure uh, headed to Scotland. That's why I mentioned that. So you're right, Barbara. That's a very interesting fact that why would he be up there? What was he doing? I, I think I think this was all carefully crafted, carefully planned. Yes, and Robert the Bruce was n- no question in my mind. He was helping the Templars just like the Sinclairs and the Weems. Okay, and, and I, they in return, they in return helped him. Let me ask yeah. a, a, a dumb question if I can. Um, the reason the Templars, when they were fleeing the, the, the king of France, went to Scotland and into hiding, as opposed to setting up housekeeping in one of those nice castles, is because <laughs> what? Uh, Scotland was now under British-English rule, and Edward was friends with Philip? Is that why the well, Templars had to hide? Well, actually, no, he wasn't. And uh, there was a lot of frustration on the part of France trying to get the Brits to do their bidding. Um, so there's an interesting story there, too. But so why were the look, Templars they, in hiding? They, well, they had been excommunicated. They had been outlawed. They were, um, they were on the run. So, you know, they're, they're probably, I mean. But if they were under you know, the protection were found, of. There were, if they were under the there protection of another nation state, what could well, the king of hey, France listen, have done? Hey, hey, Richard, back then things were a lot different. If you could sail around and find a Templar uh, and just, you know, kidnap him and take him back and collect a reward, right. uh, people were going to do it. I mean, I, under, I understand you have to respect nation sovereignty and, you know, do things the right way, but it didn't always happen that way. You, you should watch the movie The Outlaw King. At that point, Robert the Bruce had, uh, you know, basically assassinated um, a man who uh, technically had a slightly better claim to the throne of Scotland than him mm. uh, in front of an altar. And um, he was considered, he was excommunicated by the Pope, and he was considered an outlaw. Then um, that's Robert the Bruce himself. And then, of course, the Templars. Uh, were on the run, um, uh, you know, hoping to avoid the same fate as Jacques de Molay and some 60 of the others okay. in France. I want to come to Georgia now. See, I haven't forgotten you, because she has this really amazing piece of lore, American historical lore, that I didn't know until she mentioned it on a show one night. And I'm, I'm sure, Barbara, you didn't know either. So No, I was on that show. Yeah, but, but until that show, you didn't know. Right? Before the show, I didn't know. And then okay, I looked okay. At the- okay, so Georgia, you're on. The connection <laughs> of American history to the Knights Templar, to the Scottish royal family. Go for it. Well, uh, I have one uh, article on my show notes, and it is a two-page article that I wrote um, laying all this out, uh, that 
George Washington's family uh, married into the royalty of Scotland way back in the 1300s. And he was part of a royal family. And so when the American Revolution happened and the crown of America, everybody knows, was offered to Washington and he declined it, it was actually offered to Bonnie Prince Charlie first, who was in exile in France. Yes, and, yeah, that's absolutely and true. He, and he declined it, and then it was. Well, let's let's add that he was the Grand Master of the Templars. And then it was he was uh, it, the offer was given to Washington. Uh, in the article that I have, and any, anybody can click on it and download it. It also talks about uh, the family crest, which had stars and bars and red and white, very alchemical, and an eagle flying west. Um, that was all part of the Wessington or Washington family. By the way, the original name for the Washington family was Heartburn. Oh, so Washington, huh. Washington D.C. could have been called uh, Heartburn. Well, it, <laughs> it, it, it still is. I know, I know. It's giving us more heartburn now than ever. Exactly. Boy, that's I've got to jump here and add, and add something that I was told about St. Columba and Iona, um, that, Saint, that the, um, uh, the Washington family crest, and I know this personally, because I went to Soulgrave Manor uh, in the, the mid-1970s. Selgrave Manor was the George Washington's ancestral family home. It's in England, uh, even though he also, his family also married into the Scottish royal bloodline. Um, but uh, the family crest is the family crest today of Washington, D.C., which, which it is taken from. And I was told by a historian um, that the uh, Washington family crest, which is now the you know, the icon of Washington, D.C., the three stars and the two stripes in red and white, the heraldic shield of the Washington family. Um, in Soulgrave Manor, um, they still have the uh, stained glass window, or at least a replica of the original stained glass window, where the father of the family would sit at the end of a long rectangular table and, at, and uh, the son would come through the heraldic shield. Uh, in the window and bathe him his head in light. This was told to me by the guide on the last day they were open on my birthday, October 28th of 1974, when I was the only person there being shown around Solgard Manor. And I was also told by a historian that the Washington family crest um, actually came from St. Columba, from a legend, whether true or not, of St. Columba when he was on the Isle of Iona. He was in possession. He was... Uh, he was uh, securing um, the Stone of Destiny, which later went uh, to Scone Palace through Oban. And that there was a tower there, very similar, it sounded like, to one of the Templar Towers. But in the tower, there was a window, a single window. And at a specific day of the year, the three stars in the belt of Orion perfectly were framed in that window. Mm. It's like, just like in the Kivas in the southwest of the United mm -hmm. States. Um, the underground Kivas. Um, that was a very, very critical day. And of course, that goes back to the Great Pyramid in ancient Egypt and the significance of Sirius and the three stars in the belt of Orion. Wow. Wow. 
Okay, um, Scott, I want to ask you something because I've been wondering all these different names for this very important stone without which you can't become king or queen. It's the foundation of civilization, divine right of king. It's, a, it's an object. It's an artifact. It's been niggling at the back of my mind. The Sumerians had something called the Tablets of Destiny, which played a similar role in Sumerian ancient history. I'm one, how did the Stone of Destiny in Scotland get the concept aligned with it of destiny? Well, I, I, I mean, perfectly honest with, with you, I don't know. <laughs> can, I, can I weigh in on that? Absolutely. Yeah, I'll, weigh in, I'll weigh in after Georgia. <laughs> Okay, this is gonna this is gonna bring us into a whole nother area. We, Richard, you need a whole nother show to continue this subject. Hmm. Uh, there's just not enough time. However, I'd like to uh, to uh, answer that that question. You know, the Templars uh, when they came out of the Middle East into back into Europe, they brought with them not only uh, knowledge and wealth, um, but they had their hands on just about every holy, sacred artifact that there was. I mean, there are stories relating them to the Ark of the Covenant. There's a, uh, a carving uh, on one of the bosses on Chartres Cathedral that shows a Templar taking a, a, a rectangular box on wheels out of the Holy Land. Mm. Uh, they had their hands on the Mandelian, which was really the folded uh, Shroud of Turin. They had their hands on everything. Now, the, the term destiny, of destiny, applies to all of the Grail Hallows. And the stone is considered to be one of the grail hallows, along with the sword, the spear. Many of your listeners know about the spear of destiny that Hitler was, was, uh, yeah, I was going to mention that. With. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, the grail hallows are the sword, the spear, the cup, the dish, which is our modern one, because these grail hallows relate to ages of man. And they are the holy objects of the West. Uh, they're all uh, tied into meteorites. The sword and the spear, just like the stone, were uh, carved uh, or forged from meteorite iron. Yeah, King, yeah. That's King Tut's dagger, his actual dagger, is made of a meteorite. Yeah, yeah. So there's that, that otherworldly connection. So the idea of the appellation of destiny goes back to the Grail Hallows and these objects. These you keep using that term, instruments. Grail Hallows. What's what's a hallow? Hallowed objects. Sacred, sacred objects. Oh, okay, okay. So. Um, like hallowed uh, be thy name. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So, I mean, we could do a whole show on the Grail Hallows because as fascinating as the story is about the stone, uh, and some legends say that the stone was the stone that Jacob used as his pillow when he had the vision of the angels on the ladder up to heaven. Yeah, um, uh, talked about that. Yeah, so uh, 
there's just as rich a story about the origins of the spear uh, and the origins of the sword. And of course, the cup, um, the Christian version is the, the cup of the Last Supper or the cup that Joseph of Arimathea used to hold the blood and, and water uh, from the side of Christ. But these grail hollows are considered to be objects of great power, which was why Hitler was so interested in trying to find them and sent his teams all over the planet looking for objects like this. The stone is one of those. And I agree with Barbara. I think the real one is completely hidden, and it'll be brought out at the right time. Right. Wow. I'd like to add to this. Well, um, but, but the, hang on. We have to add it in the next segment because we're out of time in this segment. No, my guests this morning are Scott Walter and Barbara Honiger, and of course we've also got uh, uh, Georgia Lambert with us, and we will have time for all of them to have much to say when we return, but right now, we're at the bottom of the hour, you're on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland, this is the bagpipe of Scotland the Brave, we will rock you, a uh, presentation done in Switzerland. Theothersideofmidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, grading into Sunday morning here in the land of enchantment. As you can tell, we have uh, Scottish bagpipers in the background. My guests this morning, Scott Walter and Georgia Lambert and Barbara Honiger. And Georgia, I believe I had to cut you off, so we are no, back No, you didn't. On. Okay. No, you <laughs> cut me off. Barbara. Oh, Barbara. Sorry. Sorry, Barbara. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Um, I just wanted to answer this question about why destiny. Okay. In, in, in the big view, the kind of uh, eagle's eye view, um, I believe from my research and study that this really goes back to how the rulers of societies wherever they are this is true of every single one of them they have to figure out some story some way um, to legitimize themselves in the eyes of those below them on the social pyramid 
And this is just one of the ways to do it, these sacred objects. Um, and in the case of these particular sacred objects, absolutely, it's not just agreeing with Georgia, but there is tremendous scholarship that ties all of them to meteorites. And why are those important? As I mentioned earlier, the very first sacred object, most sacred stone object uh, of the ancient Egyptians was the Benben stone. They worshipped it. It was on the top of the very first uh, obelisk uh, at uh, Heliopolis. And um, it was, and if you think about what, what is a large black meteorite going to look like? Uh, it's going to be basically canonical in shape because that's, that's what the plasma, the extremely hot plasma, does to any stone that survives to get down to, to strike the earth. Um, when it goes through the plasma, it's, um, it's eaten away by the uh, plasma, by the heat of the plasma into a pyramid, a kind of a, 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 a curved nose pyramid, pyramidin shape. And so the Benben stone, we know, was like that. And the replicas uh, or the um, stand-ins for the original Benben stone, which, according to all the scholarship I've read, has disappeared, unfortunately, even though if it was, if it was a stone on Earth, it's somewhere on Earth still, um, but we don't know where it is, at least uh, any of us who are not, you know, uh, into the secret societies of Egypt today, uh, don't know where it is. Uh, but that original stone um, started the whole uh, sacred idea of as above, so below. So if you see a star, you know, meteor coming down in the night, if you've ever been in Egypt, which I have, or in the Middle East, especially in the desert, um, the stars look like you can just reach out and grab them. So if you were looking up and one of those stars just happened to hit a mile away from you or something and managed not to kill you, uh, that was an extremely <laughs> sacred object, as above, so below. And it was then used to be passed on by the pharaohs, one to the other, uh, and the priesthood that they, made the, pharaohs, the, 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 the royal family into the pharaohs. There's another level of this uh, as well. It's not just uh, the symbolic tie between above and below. We know, for instance, uh, and bear with me here in my explanation, we know that certain people have uh, a talent for psychometry, being able to pick up your car keys and tell you all about yourself, because matter sponge-like absorbs the subtle vibrations of the wearer or the holder. Uh, when, when, uh, and this is sort of passive. The Egyptians took it to an active um, uh, art form when they could create, via their, their magic, they could create huge thought forms and attach them to little statues. And then they could put the statues in a tomb. And when the little statue was disturbed, it would activate this huge Davic life or thought form, which was outside of time, hence the idea of Pharaoh's curses. So we know that, that huge, uh, huge identities can be um, created 
in the subtle levels and anchored to physical objects. Mm-hmm. And so the grail uh, hollows are physical objects in each time and culture that anchor um, huge reservoirs of power. And this was understood as a reality, not just symbolically. Yes, that's correct. And by the way, another interesting tidbit of history from, um, from uh, gosh, I can't remember the title of the book at the moment, the famous one about this, this, the sword of destiny, the uh, sword of destiny, spear, spear of destiny, spear of destiny, and the spear of destiny at the by end. By Ravenscroft. Yeah, by Ravenscroft. At the yeah. end of the book, you learn that none other than um, uh, the famous uh, American general uh, Patton yeah. was on his way uh, hit when Hitler, I think Hitler did, um, when he went into uh, Austria right after he annexed Austria. And, you know, the newsreels, you can still see them on YouTube of the people just, you know, raving about him going down the streets of, um, of Vienna. The first thing he did was he went to the Schatzkammer. And he went to the Schatzkammer, which is where the Holy Regalia of the Holy Roman Empire was held. And he broke the glass and he took the Spear of Destiny, uh, which is alleged to have been the Spear of Longinus that pierced Christ's side, that caused the blood and the water to fall out into the grail. He took that in all of the uh, Holy Regalia of the Holy Roman Empire and he hid it. And at the end of uh, Spear of Destiny, you learn that it's none other than General George Patton, who was uh, on his way to, he had learned where... uh, Hitler had hidden them, and he was on his way, but the United States Air Force got to it first. The interesting kicker to that story is that Hitler, uh, when, when he venerated the spear at his uh, Velvilsburg castle, mm-hmm. he sent for a Japanese sword maker to, to create out of meteorite a copy of the spear. And so when the spear fell into American hands, the power passed to the United States. The United States, because we're so good, we supposedly gave the spear back to Austria, where it resides today in the Habsburg Museum. Um, But I think just like the stone, we gave the copy back. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, why would we do that? Okay. All right, Scott, um, I want to stretch imagination beyond the earth, because I have this quaint little set of uh, prejudices based on the last several decades of my research, that human beings have occupied more than one planet in the solar system going back millions of years, and that we have been subject to rise and fall of untold empires and republics and whatever, and it's been humans that have done a lot of this on the solar system stage for a very long time, And the last time we did any of that, we had to retreat from Mars because it got to be uninhabitable. And so these connections between rulership on Earth and whatever occurred in heaven above the Earth, I think is best exemplified by something that comes, again, out of the Sumerian uh, text, which is kingship was lowered from heaven. And if that's true, and someone is typing, so that's true, is it possible that these stones, these artifacts, these these hallows are part of an eidetic memory of a time when we literally did live on more than one world, and those guys had rulership over 
everything that ordinary people could conceive of. So when they were forced to retreat just to this place, this earth, that credibility, that aura of of kingship lowered from heaven became fashioned on maybe even real artifacts from the last voyages. And when those wore out, there were substitutes made from things like meteorites and whatever. But in fact, the original tablets or stones of destiny, whatever, were literal pieces of the ships that brought the final refugees to Earth. Well, it wouldn't have to be the ships after all Cairo, which is where the Sphinx and the Great Pyramid and the other uh, the other two pyramids. Yeah, but I'm talking about a piece of sacred technology no, that literally look like nothing. To finish my sentence, I just wanted to say that Cairo means, in Egyptian, Cairo means Mars. Well, it means the victorious, which has been transliterated to Mars, the goddess of war. <clears throat> but Cairo literally does not mean Mars in a literal translation. Well, that's not what I was told by our guide uh, with Zawi Hawass, who has a PhD in ancient Egyptian history. Well, I have different sources. Zahi okay. would not be trustable. So, no, it's not Zahi. It's not Zahi. It's the PhD. Okay. Scott? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure where to go with this. Um, <laughs> well, I, I want you to go to, to your computer... And I want you to look at number nine in my items. Remember how to get there? Uh, the other I'm, side of midnight.com. Click on the banner. Hang on one sec here. This is real time radio. This is important. I know. This is this is this is great stuff here. Okay, so I'm going to what am I typing in? All right. The other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. All right. The other side of midnight. Side. All one word. Yep. Dot com. All right. Here we go. All right. You yeah. you see the homepage there with the banner at the top? Scroll down to see. You mean the other side of midnight? Yes, I did. Okay. The other Scroll side down. of midnight. There should be your oh. banner there. No, no, it's going. It's giving me the uh, the movie, the other side. Oh of midnight. no, 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 no. Wrong mm. one. All, All right. right. Uh, this side of Netflix sequel, Star Wars DVD review. I so thought just we were... the other side of midnight dot com. That's what I plugged in, and oh, I got what? yeah. What is someone well, lying? Tell them what it is, Richard. Well, you have to get to the website in order to be able to see it. You know, it's hard to describe the picture without seeing it. Hold on, it. I'm just about there. I'm gonna try it again. Hold okay. on, dot com. Go. Can you handle the truth? That's the one. Yes. Yes. All right. <laughs> now you... All right. So, all right. So I see your banner, the other side of midnight. Scroll down a smidge. Uh, you should see the Scottish Scotland unearthed. Uh, let's see. I don't. Just scroll a little down. A little down. So you see the banner. Ah, there we go. Yes. Click on okay. that. Okay. And okay, I've done that. That takes you to the guest page. Under the guest page, you'll see something that says "fast links to items." I'm under the photos of you. Okay, it says "listen to the show." Below that. The next 
slide. The next right. thing says fast links to items. Oh, there we go. Yes. Okay, Richard. Yep. All right, here and, we go. All right, and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine. A Curiosity Martian door. Click on nine. Okay. Okay, that's. I'm blowing this up now. Just click on it. It blows up automatically. Yeah. Okay. Well, first off, that looks very interesting. The only problem is is that it looks to me like the rock sort of bends in, and it doesn't look to me like it goes much further. But the other thing that's very interesting is if you look at the rock outside of that door frame on the mm. left side, mm -hmm. uh -huh. it looks like it's been cut off, doesn't it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now, now, look, now look at number 10. All right. This is a real large and large. Oh, room. there's a closer view. Yeah. Yeah. Now you see that pillar on the left of the door frame. Uh, you mean the the lintel above the? No, no, no. To, to to the left. The vertical. The there is vertical a, there, there's white a, there, area. There's a pillar with a point on top. Well, well it, it appears to be that. And flat it appears sides. To be, yeah. Well, you know what? I, I think actually there's a transition in the geology there because if you look on the left, you can see those parallel lines that uh, intersect that what appears to be a cut area. Yeah. And you can actually see that they plunge down a little bit at maybe about a 30-degree angle. Um, yeah. and, then, and then when you get to the back of that rock or inside the door, let's say, you got that fracture that's running down from the upper left of the door frame down to the lower right and that that appears to be solid rock but my my suspicion is right where that white door frame is you've got the outer weathered um, sedimentary layers but it looks to me like the rock is more competent on the inside it hasn't weathered but it looks like it's probably still part of that same formation. And a lot of times when rock weathers, it'll take on those physical features, that, um, you know, sort of bedded look that you see on the external um, surface. Um, I'm, I'm just spitballing here as I look at it, but that's, that's what it looks like to me. Well, you are a professional forensic geologist. <laughs> well, I am. <laughs> But that's what I see, and and I don't see, I don't see that doorway, if you will, going any further than maybe a couple feet inside. I mean, I, I'm a, you know, I, I don't know what the scale is exactly, but if that's a doorway, and a person could walk in there, it doesn't go much further than four or five feet. Well, there so. appears to be another door crosswise to the to the uh, tunnel. And that's why you're seeing that shadow on the left inside the door frame on the left. You, it almost looks like a like a curved um, apex. About yeah, one third. A, a lintel at the top. Yeah, and and then and then of course at the very top you've got that curved lintel, which is so bizarre. I mean, this is a long analysis. The parts of that door that used to cover that entrance is lying in front at right angles. And, and do you see it lying there kind of just uh, to the right of the Enterprise mission at the bottom? Yeah, do, I, do, I do see that. Do you see that and point, I, that series of 
of cylindrical things ending in a point. That was that was the the point at which the door was hung, that it rotated left and right, at least as we reconstructed it. And there's a lot of geometry on the other end, which is not visible in this very extreme close-up, which is designed to show the tunnel itself. All right, let let's move on. Number well, eleven. A big picture. Tell us why. Tell tell us why this is important. What's the link to what we've been talking about? Well, if if human beings, in fact, lived at one time on Mars and came back, and there are all kinds of stories in the ancient Egyptian of connections between Mars and Earth, we've now got iconography, um, mainly from the Percival mission, which shows stunning connections, literally, in, in artwork between ancient Egypt and what Percy is now giving us for Mars. Let me take you to number 11. All right. This was photographed just a few days ago. Um, the pyramids. Look at that ob- that weird feature in the upper left, which frankly looks like a cellar door, perfectly rectangular, cut into the ground, with something beside it that appears to have two um, sub rectangles. If I didn't know better, I'd say this was a cemetery, and someone was prepared to be buried. Well, this looks like a mausoleum. Look at the pyramid in the center of the picture. Look at the object to the left of it, which has left and right panels and some kind of a facial visage on the left-hand corner. The more we look at this, the more this appears to be artificial memorialization for some reason. And it's almost as if we're walked through some kind of ancient museum, which is a history of Mars in a kind of a tableau form for whatever civilization was extant when this stuff was being used, which was a long, long time ago. When I was in Egypt in 2017, and we were on the bus going uh, to Abbasimbel, it was about a three, two and a half, three hour drive, long drive through the desert. And on both sides of the road, this is on Earth now, on both sides of the road, I must have counted 300 pyramid-shaped formations. Hmm. They were natural. With this sharp? No. Yes. 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 Some of them, yes. No, you can't create a pyramid naturally because the wind creates benefacts and then the, turns around and blows from a different geometry. Well, it it erases. That I took of what I'm telling yeah, you. Yeah, but how do you know they're natural? There are hundreds and hundreds of them. And you you know for a fact they were not created by some artificer. Not, not all, not not anywhere close to all of those. No, and they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Well, I would be very suspicious because pyramids cannot form. Um, Scott, can pyramids form naturally under normal conditions? Regular foresight. Pyramidian-shaped rocks can form naturally. Um, they're not common, but it, I, I've seen it. Um, as I look at this landscape, I see exactly what you described. And that thing on the left um, does look very curious. But, I mean, for my money, what I'm seeing here, uh, if I had to say looks natural, although that that 
pyramid-shaped thing is really odd. Um, but yeah, it, they can form naturally. If I if there was more than one in this picture, I'd be a little more uh, excited ab- about it, I guess. But I, I see what you're talking about, Richard. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that I think there's there could be a natural um, well. There, there there are more pyramid. Remember, I only had room for one or two images, so I didn't want to inundate you. There's a lot more pyramids on this landscape, believe me. They're all okay. over in various upside down, left and right, like they've been upset. Anyway, moving on. Number twelve. Click on number twelve. This is very bizarre. If you oh, yeah. if you scroll okay. to the left and down and it shows up really big on my screen. Keith, we've gotta get the sizing of these down and I need to know what to do for proper sizing. But anyway, this thing looks like some kind of vehicle. It's not the only one. Um, Are you is, talking about the big rock? No, I'm talking about the big black thing that looks like a damn Corvette on the right-hand side of that number 12. Uh-huh. Then number 13, there's another object shot from the back, which looks like two vehicles. One that might be a motorcycle with a trunnion. You can definitely see the tire on the left. The other, which is kind of the back of, again, it looks like another SUV. Now, I know there are people who are saying, wait a minute, SUVs on Mars? Well, if human civilization is millions of years old, not a few thousand, and if reincarnation is real, and I have really good evidence that it is, then we come back again and again and again, and the same architects and the same designers and the same people who put things together do it again and again and again, and Obviously, there's a kind of a pool of ideas and form follows function. So is it surprising that you might find vehicles on another planet that look eerily like vehicles on this planet because a vehicle has to have certain fundamental um, attributes, otherwise it will not work. And finally, number 14, this we spotted just a couple of days ago. Uh, and again, this is very large. It's probably better that you don't click on it. Just look at it there on the screen. This is an um, object that appears to have bogies, tracked uh, undercarriage, which you can see on the right, and appears to be draped either in some kind of camouflage that looks like rocks, um, or in fact it is rock, and it's part of a museum exhibit. There appears at the top left to be a panel, like, a, like you're supposed to wander around and read the inscriptions, and if you actually look in the background, just above the center line of the vehicle, you can see what appears to be some kind of stelae or marker, which has explanatory imagery and writing on it. But of course, the resolution in these images is not good enough to really tell. Is, is number 14 the same object as in number 13? No, no, it's another no. one. It's about a mile away from the two. Oh. Um, there's a whole bunch of vehicles. I only had time to put up a couple. The more you look and the better the imagery they're giving us, the more you see. And of course, it completely confounds any normal history of Mars that we've been given for the last 50 years out of the space agency. Well, for my money, you have to put vehicle in quotes. I mean, that's a rock as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's why details are important. Yeah. Well, look, um, I'm going to close out by just inviting everybody 
to join me uh, in my apartment in Scotland for Scotland's independence. When the second referendum on Scotland's independence passes in December of 2023. Do we know the date of that? I don't have the precise date, but I can try to find out. Um, The Scottish National Party, I believe the first minister, what we might think of as prime minister, Nicola Sturgeon, uh, announced that um, the Scottish National Party intends to have a second referendum on independence in December of 2023. One of the reasons for that, by the way, most people don't remember, the first Scottish referendum, which did not succeed, after the Prime Minister of the UK in London lied through his teeth to the voting public. Um, But that was in 2014. And after it failed, uh, there was an agreement reached between the government of Scotland, the Scottish National Party, and the uh, party uh, or the the Crown in London that that Scotland uh, had to wait 10 years before having another referendum. Wow. And it's coming up in 2023. Well, that's a little bit before 10 years from 2014, which is a little bit worrying to me uh, because you want to not give any excuse to whoever becomes the new prime minister or excuse me. Yeah, the new prime minister uh, instead of Boris Johnson. You don't want to give him any excuse um, to not, quote, allow, unquote, the second referendum. Well, was this some kind of a law was it mandated it couldn't be before 10 years or was it a kind of it a was suggestion a, it was an agreement it was an agreement that the scottish national party is apparently trying to keep so if both parties agree to amend it they can amend it right no 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 no. the agreement was just that this scotland wouldn't be able to hold a, another referendum to try again for 10 years from 2014 well, if we're talking December 23, a month later, it's 24 and it's 10 years. That's correct. And it may be that the referendum lasts for a certain period of time. I, maybe it's not just a vote of a day. I don't know. I'm looking into it, but it was announced. Or maybe for... it will be announced in December 23 and filled in 24. Scott, I wanted to thank you so much. we got about 30 seconds. Uh, what do you want to leave us with? Well, uh, your pictures of Mars are quite interesting, but um, I, I will have to agree with Barbara on the last photo. That that does look like a rock to me, but it's an awful curious-looking thing, and I can see where people would be um, uh, moved to uh, to draw a different conclusion. But uh, if I hadn't put one down, I'd say it's a rock. But thank you for having me here, Barbara. It's great to spend time with you again we really yes. enjoyed you on in scotland and let's do it again soon absolutely Fantastic. Look to getting those slides you were going to send us all okay guys we have reached the end of another show on this saturday night sunday morning tomorrow night i've got rick levine and georgia lambert once again and we're going to be talking about what is going on on this planet and we're looking for a hyper dimensional set of solutions. So until then, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.